Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for this uh, day that you've given us. Thank you that we're all alive to enjoy it. And with this time that we have, help our minds to be sharp and focused, help our hearts to be softened to the leading of the Holy Spirit, and please give us a preparation not only to stand in the truth, but to share the truth with others, especially as we see these end times so rapidly approaching. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The, what we're going to cover today basically overlaps two studies from the It Is Written Bible Study series. Uh, that is number 18, The Mystery Beast of Babylon, and number 21, In Search of the Church. Mystery Beast of Babylon, of course, talks about what Babylon is. Babylon is one of those uh, known quantities, at least it's a, it's a heard of term that people want to find out. What does Babylon mean? And uh, the Bible does speak to it very clearly, so we're going to address that. But as you and I know, for ourselves and also for your Bible study interests, you notice we're talking about number 18 and 21. This is getting down towards the end, right? Uh, the series that I do, this is number 19. The Last Faithful Daughter, this is where we're going to be getting my notes from today, um, but in the Unlock Revelation series that's in your uh, manuals there, your workbooks, it's number 19. But we're talking about 18, 19, 21, these are late. Give me a couple of reasons why it would be a good idea to do these particular studies later in the course. They are dynamite. They are dynamite, because <laughs> we start with the, the average stuff and it gets better as you go along. <laughs> that's a thought, I don't know. You have to lay a foundation first, right? I mean, we're going to be ta ta diving into, I mean, at this point, hopefully they've already understood that the Antichrist power is the Roman Catholic papacy. They should have gotten that in the first, you know, lessons before this. What we're going to expand to is notice that Babylon also includes the daughters of that papacy. Because you'll have Roman Catholics who have a difficult time with that, but then you'll say, now you other Protestants... You Baptists, you Nazarenes, you Church of Christ, you whatever the thing is, you know, this is on you too. Yeah. So we're going to kind of expose that a little bit more, going to dive more into what that is. And also, in search of the church gets into the idea of there's a remnant church. There is a faithful church. And so basically what we're doing, and what I'd like to do in this time, is kind of look at the book of Revelation and show how these two uh, ideas of the unfaithful fallen church and churches of Babylon are contrasted against the faithful church, which is the remnant movement of prophecy, okay? So, what I want to do, and, and we'll try to do the whole key points thing to keep your minds focused here, but let's start with this concept. When you're dealing with the remnant in contrast to Babylon, the book of Revelation uses some imagery that is going to be kind of important to explain. So I like to point out, and I don't know if this is, it's not a, it's not a key point, but it's a, it's a flow of thought, right? The first thing you want to establish is that uh, in Bible prophecy, woman equals what? Right. So we want to establish that that idea, because Revelation has these two pillars, these two schools of thought about Two women. There's the pure church of Revelation 12, and there's the apostate Babylon church of Revelation chapter 17. But both of them are described as women. So you want to make sure that the people see that when we're talking about these figurative women, what we're talking about is a literal church. Okay? So for instance, a couple of texts to support this. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 2, 
And we'll see that God has always had a people, both in the Old and New Testament. And I, what, I, what I like to demonstrate is that Bible, both in the Old and New Testaments, God refers to his people as a woman, the church. Okay? So, for instance, in Jeremiah 6, verse 2, he's very, says, he says succinctly, I have likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate woman. He says, I am using symbolism here. Uh, Israel is compared to a woman. Now, if you go to 2 Corinthians in the New Testament, you see the same concept invoked when speaking of the church. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 11, verse 2, says here, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you, and he's speaking to the church, to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste, what? Virgin to Christ. Now, notice this. Not only... Have we got the idea that the church is referred to both in the Old and New Testaments as a woman, but it also tells us what kind of woman, a virgin, a pure woman, right? Innocent. So whenever the church is faithful, um, it's referred to as a pure, lovely, delicate, virgin, whatever those adjectives are, woman. Now contrast that with a state of unfaithfulness and look what the Lord calls the church. Go back to Jeremiah now. Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 6, right back to where uh, Jeremiah was calling the church a woman, what was the condition of the church at that point? Chapter 3 and verse 6, the Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She, now notice corporate Israel is now referred to as singular she, catch this? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the what? The harlot. Now that's interesting. Bible prophecy in the Old Testament calls the unfaithful Israel in a condition of harlotry. That's going to very much help when we get to Revelation chapter 17, where's this great harlot woman. Automatically the symbol should fall into place. Oh, this is a church that's being unfaithful to God. Very clear, okay? Hosea also had that experience. I think that's probably enough, but we go to Hosea just to make sure you can show that this is more than one time mentioned. Hosea chapter 1, you know, there's a, there are prophets that were uh, ridiculed or mocked, uh, banished, even executed. I don't know how many had it worse than poor Hosea, whose whole ministry was to go marry an unfaithful woman and experience being cheated on repeatedly, you know. That's your parable that you get to live through, right? But why did the Lord do this? Notice chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of what? Harlotry. And children of harlotry. Now, I think that's interesting. You have the harlot and you have the children. Same thing you're going to see in Revelation chapter 17. For the land has committed great harlotry. So notice your wife is supposed to be a personification of what the whole nation has done, which is cheating on the Lord. For the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So clearly we can establish from the Bible that in Bible prophecy, a woman is the church, and in her good state, she's pure and holy and undefiled, and in her fallen state, her unfaithful state, it's repeatedly referred to as harlotry. Okay? So when we get to the book of Revelation, we start looking for these symbols, all of a sudden, oh, we've already seen them in the 
prophecies of the Bible. So let's go to Revelation chapter 17 and start with this unfaithful church. And honestly, you can start, I think you can start either way. Uh, start with the unfaithful or start with the faithful. Um, I think it's kind of nice to end with the faithful, <laughs> just because it's more of a positive spin, and you come out and it gets you to the remnant church. Revelation chapter 17 describes the unfaithful church, or what I've described as the persecuting church, versus Revelation 12's the persecuted church. Okay, but they're in enmity with each other. They're fighting each other here. So you'd start here with this idea. You get the idea in their head that uh, woman equals church. Then you move into Revelation 17. And you start looking at the harlot church here. Verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. So already we know we're in Bible prophecy and we're seeing a great harlot and we've already established that that represents the church in a fallen condition. So that's easy to decode at this point. With whom the kings of the earth, that is the secular powers, the civil authorities, have committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. She carried me away, uh, so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman. And after you do that study, you're like, aha, that's a church sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, if we were just starting this Bible study, you had to pause right there and say, now we got to study what's this beast all about with the seven heads and ten horns. But by this point, hopefully your interests have already gone through a discourse on the Antichrist, has gone through Daniel chapter 7, and you know you had the, the, the lion and the bear, then the leopard, then you have that terrible beast, right, that ended up with seven heads, and, and anyway, hopefully they can see from this, this is a representation of that Antichrist power, that this, um, that this is the church represented there, okay? Now, the woman was arrayed in purple, and by the way, we could go a little bit deeper, but you see that the the, the empire was Rome, right? But now this is the church that's guiding Rome, that's riding on top of it, steering it, right? So this is clearly a reference to the papal phase of the Roman Empire. Yeah? Okay. Now, and that's going to be important because we also have a timeline here that comes up. Um, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. This is obviously not a, 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 a study on jewelry and adornment, but it is not inconsequential that when he wants to describe in symbolic graphic language what unfaithfulness looks like personified, it would be dressed this way. And you will contrast that in a moment to the pure church that has none of those uh, external and extra accoutrement. The only things that are dressed in the natural light of the sun, the moon, and the stars. But here, there's a self, you know, dressed herself in this, and put on these clothes. And um, for young people, I like to, whenever we read here, it says, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. To me, this looks like, and I don't know if you're of the generation that has had a lot of people leave the church and then try to flaunt how far out of the church they are once they've left. Um, 
I, I have people like that in my life and I see them on social media, on Facebook and stuff. And usually I like to show on Friday night or Sabbath what they're out doing, you know. We're out here at this club or at this bar or at this concert or whatever and you match it up to Revelation chapter 17, the same outfit, the same in their hand is a cup full of, you know, wine or what, alcohol, whatever the thing is. And it's a flaunting, like showing how rebellious you are. Okay? And that's the imagery you're getting here is that they've decked herself in jewels and wearing these kind of uh, alluring clothing and you have all this, this alcohol. And it's a picture of um, open rebellion. Yes, ma'am. Uh, and then, okay, so you're telling someone that, and then what if they say, what about the red and purple and scarlet? They said, I'm the red, purple, and scarlet. Well, that's why I'm saying this is not a study on this, because then they can go in, well, what about this jewelry? What about this one? My grandmother gave it to me, and I'm saying don't go there. I'm saying in-house, that's what we're talking about. But it's a good th- I would say whenever you do talk about the jewelry and adornment thing, don't hesitate going to Revelation 12 and Revelation chapter 17. Say it's a little, in- we can do a whole study on that, but I'm not going to get into, like, What's wrong with purple versus red? Like, what is pink? Have you done something wrong today? No. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? I don't think that's the path we want to go down. What I'm saying is, as a big picture, the general terms, he's describing a picture of a rebellious people who are unfaithful to God. Anyway, and it says, on her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great. The mother of harlots, and the abominations of the earth. So is this woman a harlot? Yes, because we're already told this is the view of the great harlot, right? Thus we have Babylon the great. This is an equivalence. Babylon is the great harlot, which is the Roman Catholic Church. Okay? However, you notice it's the mother of harlots. So does this church have children? Yes. And what do they share in common? Harlotry, right? It's a chip off the old block, right? This is a, an extension of that, though they might be a different body, they might be a different denomination, it's still got the same harlotry running through it that's passed to the next generation, right? Now that's going to be an interesting thing because in Revelation chapter 12, the pure church has a remnant of her seed. So you have the two churches and then the offspring, Right? I think it's fascinating. And we have one more descriptor about this uh, persecuting power. Verse 6, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Now, let's contrast all of that with what we find in Revelation chapter 12. And we're going to spend a little time in Revelation chapter 12. And we're not going to be going through verses 7 through 9 and all that stuff before, like we have previously, but I want to highlight something that you may not have seen in Revelation chapter 12, probably have it, really not that particularly long of a chapter, it's only 17 verses, but what Revelation chapter 12 is, is an outline of the entire church of God from the Old Testament to the very last days, and I want to establish that from the Bible, okay? Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman. And automatically, by this time, once you've gone to the Old Testament, New Testament, then the book of Revelation, you're expecting that we know that this is now a picture of church. Right? 
a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. So after you do your little study of Revelation 17, you want to go to Revelation 12 just to make sure we see our sequence here. So we have a church, and we have a distinction in clothing, right? Dressed with the sun, clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Now, rack your brains for a minute. Is there, this is the beginning of his, this is the introduction to us of this pure woman in the book of Revelation. And it opens up with this symbolism of the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars. Is there a place in the Bible that talks about the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars? Besides here. Genesis. Let's go back there, please. Genesis chapter 37. If someone guessed the appropriate chapter, that was going to be a very impressive thing. But way back, yes, Genesis chapter 37. Just as Jacob, who is known as Israel, was having his children and beginning the nation of Israel, the family of Israel that would become the nation of Israel eventually, a child was born by the name of Joseph. Joseph was an interesting kid. And we'll just start, we've got a, just a little bit of extra time, not particularly extra time, but chapter 37, verse 1. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. So this is the story of the beginning of Jacob. Just like you have the story of Adam, you have the story of Noah and his generations. This is the launching of Jacob right here, okay? Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers and, was, and, the, lad was, uh, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. So you remember, of course, that Joseph was from a different mother, and he was beloved of his father over his brothers, and now he brings a bad report back about his brothers to his father. Verse 3, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age. Also he had made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers. Now I don't know if he's naive, but you should get a vibe, but there's some people you shouldn't just share everything with, you know. There's some dangerous people who may not have your best interest in mind. But Joseph shares this, I had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. So they already hated him and now they hate him even more. So he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. You gotta hear this thing. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright and indeed your sheaf stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. See, it's not that bad, you worship me. <laughs> Calm down, it's fine. You know how dad loves me more and gave me the coat? Well, apparently God loves me more too. <laughs> and I had to wonder if Jacob was ever like, just shush with the favoritism, just calm it down, son. Verse 8, and his brother said to him, shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Verse 9, then he dreamed still another dream. You're like, oh, Joseph, please, not this time. And told it to his brothers. 
and said, look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. Now, what in the world is that? What is the meaning of this dream? Well, we don't have to guess. The Bible interprets itself. Just keep reading. Verse 10, so he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream you have dreamed? And now he interprets it. Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? What do the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars represent? The family of Jacob, of Israel, right? By the way, who is the 12th star? Joseph himself, right? So you have the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars, the family of Israel. This is the very beginning of the history of Israel in symbolic language. Now, I don't know if you think that's cool, but I think that's pretty cool, right? So when you go back to the book of Revelation, and of course, we could go through the whole history of Joseph gets sent down into slavery by these brothers, but he saves them, and out of that salvation comes this great nation. I mean, the whole thing, right? But this is the very headwaters of that family. Now, if you go back to Revelation chapter 12, I think it's fascinating when that God describes his faithful church, he starts with a woman clothed in the sun, the moon under her feet, and a garland of 12 stars on her head. So basically, Revelation 12 starts with um, uh, ancient Israel. And notice, we're going to, in 17 verses, we're going to go screaming through the entire history of the world. So you're like, well, why don't we talk about this era or this era? They're just giving us the landmarks. Boom. And then skip over to boom, because what's the very next verse say in verse 2? Then being with child... Now, what was the child that the ancient Israel, the woman, was anticipating? The Messiah coming, right? So now we move from ancient Israel to, um, I don't know, how, what's the term for Israel at the time of Christ's birth? I don't know. We'll just call it Israel <laughs> um, anticipating the Messiah. Of course, was there a promise given to God's people that a child would come? Of course. Could you come up with text to demonstrate that? Absolutely. The very first one, of course, is found where? Genesis chapter 3, right? Right? Now the woman would have a seed that would crush Satan's head, the deliverer. And so this is the great hope of all Israel that someday the Messiah would come. So ancient Israel was saved so that the Savior could come from Israel, right? And Israel now is getting close, and now, according to the symbolism in the prophecy, is with child. Has the child been born yet? No, but we're getting close, right? Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. So not only we're pregnant, we're coming into the actual arrival now of the Messiah. And just at that sliver of time, as Jesus was about to be born, verse 3, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. Where did we just see this in our Bible study? Revelation chapter 17, remember? The harlot beast was riding that 
seven heads and ten horns. I mean, the, the, a harlot was riding the scarlet beast of seven heads and ten horns. And seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood there, uh, uh, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth. So notice we're really coming into the actual time of the birth to do what? Destroy or devour her child as soon as it was born. Did Satan know Bible prophecy? Absolutely. Was he aware that the, did he think he followed the star to the Yes. He knew about Bethlehem. He knew where to be. And was there already, from the time of Jesus' birth, a death decree on his head? Remember? The, when the wise men came and told Herod about the good news, a king is born. He said, wait a minute, a king is still reigning. What are you talking about, a king is born? Where is he? And so he makes a decree that all the babies should be killed, right? All the male child over, under two years of age. And... This is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. This is what it's talking about, right? She bore a male child, verse 5. So this basically brings us anticipating the Messiah, and we have the birth of Jesus now. But notice what we do here, what we have here. She bore a male child, and notice it's a child with a capital C, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up to God and his throne. What did we just go through in one verse? The birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Now, clearly is the ministry of Jesus referred to in this chapter? Yes. The life, right, of Jesus and his ascension to heaven. But is it the main focus of this chapter? No. It is a time mark, right? It's a sequential thing. So we have the, uh, the entire... Uh, Jesus' first coming, we should say, is all wrapped up in one verse. But we're walking through history. Ancient Israel, then Israel leading up to the anticipation of the birth, then we have the birth and the ascension of Jesus. Now we finally transition to the New Testament church. Verse 6. Then the woman, so notice who's the focus still on. The woman, the church. The focus of Revelation 12 is the church of Jesus Christ. It's the woman. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that, she should, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Okay, now we have the New Testament church all the way up through the 1,260-year prophecy. And as we have studied in other lessons... We know that that 1,260-year time frame goes from when to when? 538 A.D. until 1798 A.D. So this takes us all the way up until what year? 1798. Or the beginning of what the Bible refers to as the time of the end. So notice we've just gone through the Old Testament in very fast fashion, beginning with ancient Israel, leading up to the Messiah, Jesus' ministry and his ascension into heaven, and then it turns our attention to the church or the woman after the birth of Jesus, all the way up through that great persecution of 1,260 years. Are we clear so far? That Revelation 12 is simply walking us chronologically through the history of God's people. Good? Now, there seems to be a bit of a break 
that seems to be there, is, and it tells us basically the war behind this. Like, who is this dragon? And why is he so mad? <laughs> and it tells us the great controversy story. That's what we've been covering when we talked about the great controversy, verse 7 through 12, is that great controversy. It to break, takes a break in the middle of chapter 12 to give us the background of where all this came from. But now you notice, GC, great controversy. I'm sorry, yes. Great controversy, thank you. Uh, GC, great controversy. The great controversy story is told. So also, notice it's a history inside of a history, but it goes back beyond the history of just Israel. Why is there a problem? Oh, where did this even come from? Which, by the way, is the same format that Ellen White used in the book, The Great Controversy. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but it traces the history of the church, this time starting in the New Testament time all the way to end of time. And in the middle of the book, she pauses and say, why was sin permitted? Where did this all come from? And she tells the background story. I think it's fascinating. Revelation chapter 12 does the same thing. It's going through a flow of history, then it puts a pause in there to tell us about this background, but then we can go to verse 13 and we can know that we're picking up right where we left off. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. So notice we're right back to where uh, verse 6 left off, the persecuting of the woman who had given birth to the male child. So if you took out verses 7 through 12, it would be a seamless transition. So there's a background story stuck in. Which is, by the way, how I, whenever we present to a public group who's here to learn about the book of Revelation, how do we launch into this whole great controversy with the war in heaven and all this kind of stuff? Well, I say, look, in the middle, right in the middle of the book of Revelation is the seed of all the issues that come out. So the first thing we want to do is study that background story that's told in the book of Revelation. It's grounded there. And then everything else in the book of Revelation will fit into it. Anyway, so verse 13. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male church, uh, to, the, to, the, to the male child, sorry. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. We're still covering the same time, times, and half a time. Where before it was 1,260 days, now it's time, times, and half a time. It could also be called as 42 months, and we know that that's the exact same time period, right? We know where we are in the prophecy. So, verse 15, so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. So as the persecution goes on, he's spewing out all these waters, which is, you know, there's a lot of symbolism there, but let's just say, just keep it on the big picture, Satan is attacking this woman furiously, especially during that 1,260-year period, and he's spewing out all this stuff, but the earth opens up its mouth and helps the woman. And then we get to the very, this is almost done, this is the very last verse now. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went to make war with whom? The rest of her offspring, or as the King James says, the remnant of her seed. Does the faithful church have offspring? Yes. Are all of them faithful? No. But there is that last faithful daughter, that remnant of her seed, 
the rest of her offspring. And how do you know, how can you distinguish them between the others? Because they're the ones who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Which is clear, is it, what, what's the difference between a faithful church and an unfaithful church? One keeps the commandments of God and one doesn't. Right? The issue is fidelity, loyalty, which is always demonstrated in obedience. So you have one church that is faithful and one that is, un, that is unfaithful. And now notice, since we've already gone through here, we know that we're talking about a last day church who keeps the commandments of God and has the testimony of Jesus. So one of, oftentimes we look at the markers and we say, all right, the remnant church, as described in Bible prophecy, has these two characteristics. They keep the commandments of God, have the testimony of Jesus. But also when you look at the context of Revelation 12, it also tells us when it would exist, which is in these last days now. So basically in the book of Revelation, you have a trajectory of two churches. You have the harlot church, which in a previous study was shown to be the Antichrist power or the Roman Catholic Church, right? But what added information do we find in Revelation chapter 17? Is that that harlot church has what? Harlot daughters. Little harlot churches. Now, God, however, in contrast to that, has had a faithful people and still in these last days, there is a remnant of her seed who is still faithful. So you have all these harlot daughters from Revelation chapter 17, that's how that one ends, versus the remnant church, or the last faithful daughter, which to me helps really get us far down the road of why are there so many denominations? Because Satan works by deception. So when you go to look for a church, please don't go look for the one that's the most popular or has the best music and the most charismatic preaching and the best logo or the largest whatever, you know. And these are or the closest to home or the ones your parents went to. You know, there's 101 reasons that are bad to join a church. But what you're looking for is one that is faithful to the word of God, who keeps the commandments of God and has the testimony of Jesus. So you're, now you want to, now you've basically set up in their minds this, this idea. There's there's either faithful or unfaithful, and that's what makes the remnant different. It's not that they're especially special people that are inherently better or anything like that. The distinction between the remnant and Babylon is one is faithful and one is not. That's it. Friends, Seventh-day Adventism is not just another Protestant denomination that happens to keep the right day. It's an entire concept of biblical truth, which is outlined in the three angels' messages. Okay? So that's what I'd like to go to now is the three angels' messages. Go to Revelation chapter 14. And that's fine. That's great. So was the Roman Catholic Church at one point. <laughs> there, at some point, there wasn't a denom- there weren't denom- There wasn't Catholic, there wasn't Protestant, there wasn't anything. It was just the church. So at what point did it become the harlot beast? I don't know. For me personally, let's take it to an individual like... At what time does a person go from faithful to unfaithful? Anytime they know truth and they consciously disobey. To me, that's the best I got. All right, Revelation chapter 14. Um, This is the message of God's remnant people. They're not just a... Because if we had the time, what I would like to go through is notice how in Revelation chapter 12, 
it, it scrolls us all the way down to end time events after 1798, and there's a remnant people, right? And that's all that Revelation 12 is. The focus is on the church, culminating with the end time church who keeps the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus. Yes? Okay, now, in Revelation 13, Revelation 13 only has two parts. It has the description of the beast from the sea, which is that harlot power, right? The Roman Catholic Church. And it also has, introduces us a new beast who comes up out of the earth. Notice what it says in chapter 13, verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Now, notice that this is appearing after 1798. How do we know that? Because look back in Revelation chapter 13. Let's just start with chapter 13, verse 1. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. Do you notice we're having the same beast over and over, seven heads and ten horns? And on his, horn, on his horns ten crowns, and on his head blasphemous names. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. What do you notice about those animal parts? We've already seen those before in a previous study about the Antichrist, right? That that's from Daniel chapter 7. But what's the difference here? Well, notice they're in reverse, right? Daniel sees them, bear, uh, I'm sorry, lion, bear, leopard, strange beast, right? But now he sees a beast composed of parts of a leopard and a bear and a lion. It's the same string of history. But Daniel sees it going forward. John sees it culminating in that final beast, looking back. But it's the same span of history. That, this is a beautiful link between Daniel and Revelation. It's a bridge between the two, right? So we're literally picking up the baton where Daniel left off, John goes forward, okay? Now, the, again, the beast, verse 2, which was, I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear. His mouth was like a mouth of a, uh, of a, a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. So notice the dragon gives him his own power and authority. So this is a beast who is the personal representative of the dragon. But now notice this, verse 3. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. When did that occur? 1798. That's what 1798 is, is the mortal wounding of that first beast. But now it goes beyond that. Everything else has culminated in 1798. This is the first time it goes beyond that. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was what? Healed. It's on the other side of 1798. It gives us a timestamp. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshiped the dragon who gave the authority of the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And just identifying this even more clearly, he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies and, was, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Have we seen that time frame before? Yes. Then he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in it. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is the beast, this is the harlot that was drunk with the blood of the saints. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the, lamb, in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now notice what it says. 
If anyone has not hear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Again, a reference to this time frame of 1798. Here is the what of the, is the patience and the faith of the saints. Notice the saints now, Revelation chapter 12, it culminates with the remnant who are being persecuted by the, by the dragon, right? And they just hang on and stay faithful. Revelation chapter 13 describes this end time people as being patient and faithful. But I want to point out that the remnant so far has always been described in a defensive posture. They're faithful, they're hunkered down, and they're standing firm. Just holding on while the storm blows around them, right? Now, we have a particular element, if we've already, and you're going to see it if they haven't already, that the United States in Bible prophecy now comes up. By the way, gives you a, uh, another marker in history. Uh, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and you know the whole thing there. The beast from the earth is simply the Antichrist's accomplice who works on his behalf to make the whole world worship the first beast, which, of course, in worshiping the first beast, you're really worshiping the dragon, which is what Satan wanted all along. Did he always speak like a dragon? Okay. I don't know. I would imagine not, though. Because it seems to go in a progression, and especially if you read the Great Controversy, where it starts off as a lamb-like with those two horns. Please, please I, I just made the mistake there. The beast is never described as lamb-like. Only the horns are like a lamb. Just for what it's worth. It does say in God... It does say in God we trust on our money. Um, there's no doubt that we've made declaration to be a Christian nation. I don't have any problem with that. But, verse 11, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and spoke like a dragon. So is it a dragon-like beast, or is it a lamb-like beast? It's a beast <laughs> that has two horns like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon. So which makes it more of... We say the lamb-like beast because it has horns, but why don't we say the dragon-like beast because it has a voice like this? It's a beast who has Christ-like principles at its founding, but it has the voice of the dragon. It's a schizophrenic beast. But what is his purpose? To exercise all the authority of the first beast in his presence and cause the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Right? And this is a whole study of the United States in Bible prophecy. But this is the context of the remnant church. Because here is the patience of the saints who are going through this difficult time. So you get the, if you just read Revelation chapter 12 and 13, you think, yeah, God's going to have a faithful people, and they just kind of roll over and play dead and squeeze tight and just wait for God to come deliver them. They're in a defensive posture. But notice now, Revelation 14 comes along, and that remnant rises up. It's not going to sit there quietly taking it. It's going to have a counter message, the three angels' messages, right? Amen. And then it describes these faithful who endure this terrible time in the first five verses of Revelation chapter 14. Then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. And notice it's showing them in a posture of victory here. 
And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, like the voice of loud thunder, and it heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. We're not at all getting into a discussion as whether this is a literal or symbolic number. I just want to be a part of it. That's it. Notice in symbolic language, these are the ones who are not defiled with women. I think that's interesting. For they are virgins. This is representative of that pure, holy remnant church who haven't caved to the harlot women, right? These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. What a great description of the remnant people of God. They just follow the Lamb wherever he goes. If you ever want to do it, this is a great jump off into the Sanctuary study. Jesus starts in the camp, moves into the courtyard, has his ministry, which culminates, of course, in his death on Calvary. He ascends into heaven to the holy place. But there's that one more building. And it implies that in the last days, Christ goes somewhere and they follow him wherever he goes. Does Bible prophecy show Christ moving somewhere in the last days? Yes. Coming with the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days to begin that work of judgment, right? By the way, that also now is a time marker. Do we have a date for that? I think that's pretty cool. We're marching all the way through the history of God's faithful people, but the last day people are not just quietly hanging onto their bottle of water. And the sloppiest, both at the same time. Well, praise the Lord for his intervening mercies. Again, these are those who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, bearing, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no, what? Deceit, no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So if they are in their mouth is found something that's not deceit, not guile. So it is having truth in their mouth, that they have something to say in this last day. They're not just being something, they're saying something. What is that something? Well, let's just keep reading. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God, and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. What is the hour of his judgment beginning? October 22, 1844. The distinctive of the Seventh-day Adventist Church is not the Sabbath. The distinctive is the sanctuary message, right? And the pre-Advent judgment. This is a message that's going out. Fear God and give... If all we do is preach the Sabbath, we are not preaching the three angels' messages. I'm sorry. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment. But I thought we were just supposed to preach the gospel. Look at it, friends. What is he saying? He's having the everlasting gospel saying, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Is the judgment a part of our gospel presentation? Yes. Somehow we've gotten this idea that meaning to preach Jesus is some sort of, oh, that he just came and lived with us. Oh, that he came and ministered to us. Oh, that he died on our behalf. Or that he's interceding in heaven. All of which is true, but we've got to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. 
And where is he now? In the judgment hall. So there should be a people on earth saying, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. What kind of preacher of righteousness would be if Moses preached how much God loved them and someday a savior was coming, but never mentioned the flood? Look at the apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. What does he preach? He does not preach that Jesus came and lived a merciful, beautiful, wonderful ministering life. He came and he said, you, Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, is both Lord and Christ, right? Present truth. We must preach the Jesus of today. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Of course, that's a direct quote from where? The fourth commandment, right? Which is the Sabbath commandment. It's calling us back to the commandments of God, particularly that downtrodden one that Satan wants us to forget. The one commandment that says, remember, is the very one the Christian world has forgotten. And you see the rest of them. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon has fallen and fallen the great city because she's made all the nations drink, all the nations drink their wine of the wrath of her fornication. Friends, that ties right back into Revelation chapter 17. That is that Babylon. And now it has fallen because this truth is piercing it. The great darkness of drunkenness that is the confusion of Babylon is being brought down by a presentation of present truth. Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And of course, the third angel followed him, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength in the cup of his indignation. This is some of the strongest language in the Bible. But, just in case you're thinking, well, are we sure that's what the remnant's supposed to be doing? Look at verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. It's exactly what we saw in Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. Is it not? And the dragon was enraged with the woman. He went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Here they are. They're not just keeping faithful themselves they're proclaiming the gospel message to the world. I believe, and I think we shared this earlier, but let's just double check it again. If you go back to Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus describes the end time events, I believe he walks through the same history as he walked through in Revelation there. Matthew chapter 24, verse 9, And they will deliver you up to tribunals to, to, and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because of lawlessness, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Does Christ prophesy that there would be a group of people faithful unto the very end? Yes. And then what's the very next thing he says in verse 14? And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Which is exactly the outline of Revelation chapter 14. The first five verses describe those who will endure to the end. The next verses describe the message that they give to the world, which is the everlasting gospel to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. 
And then finally, Revelation 14 culminates with the return of Jesus Christ. Verse 14 of Revelation 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, obviously, different Bible study guides are going to go through this information differently. But the concept is there. And that's the purpose of what we're doing here, is to get the concept in your head. That you start off with this idea that in the Bible, in Bible prophecy, a woman equals the church. And then you can just so show that in the book of Revelation, there are these two streams of thought. There's the harlot church of Revelation chapter 17 that has harlot daughters in the last days. Then you have Revelation 12, which is an outline of God's pure people from the very beginning of calling a people down into the very end of time. And one of the things that they're identified with, yes, they keep the commandments of God, but they also have this message of present truth in their mouth, the everlasting gospel. It includes the hour of his judgment has come. And they follow the lamb wherever he goes. And there's a whole and if you start, again, we, let's talk about how this, all of this message is interwoven. You can't be a Seventh-day Adventist. Let me say this right. Seventh-day Adventism is more than just the Sabbath. It is an entire paradigm. It's an entire way of, it's a lens through which we see the entire world. <laughs> let, me, let me give you an example. The other day I had to take Mark had to do this too, and I'd be curious. I don't know what his answer was, but we're on a committee where they wanted us to take a cultural um, inventory, a cultural assessment of how culturally sensitive we were to different, you know, ethnic groups and nationalities and whatever people's groups. It was fine. But at the end, you it had certain things that you had to, like, talk about yourself. And the And some of the things were, like, just scroll down, male, female, you know, age range, this kind of stuff. But when it came to the line for ethnicity, it left it blank, and I could type in whatever I wanted. And I said, and after, and I'm starting to get confused. What's the difference between ethnicity, nationality, cultural background? What are those terms? And I don't want to mess up this quiz, so I had to Google what ethnicity was. And they're like, whatever cultural um, heritage to which you most strongly identify or something like that, you know? Okay, and I was starting to think. And I was like, oh, that must mean that, like, are they asking if I'm white or are they asking if I'm an American? I don't know. And now, in and, and reflection, how do I identify myself? <laughs> would I say, hello, my name is Cameron, I'm white. <laughs> or would I say, hello, my name is Cameron, I'm an American. Like, what is my distinguishing thing? What is my culture? What is my true ethnicity? And I didn't know. <laughs> and then it struck me. And, and I'm, I, in all seriousness, I, I wasn't even trying to be joking, but my answer was, I am an Adventist American. Let me tell you something. If I moved to a whole other country that had different currency and a different language, different weather, <laughs> I'd still feel at home because there'd be a Seventh-day Adventist church I could go to. Right? And there's a shared, 
Yeah, exactly. Everywhere you go, there's haystacks. Exactly. But there is a shared identity of being the remnant people of God that supersedes even cultural heritage, that national up, uh, you know, identity, that I am more Adventist than I am American. Do you see what I'm saying? Like if I was, for, for my faith, <laughs> banished to another, you know, God-forsaken corner of this globe, but globes don't have corners, but if I was banished to Canada, I'm just making <laughs> Right? It's like, slow down, I know, I know, whatever. I only pick on the Canadians because they can take it. They're, you know, they're good-hearted. And what are they going to do? Hey, that's about it. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, if I was, if, if for some reason I was stripped of my nationality and my passport were removed and I had to be foisted into some other place, if I could be a Bible-believing Seventh Adventist Christian, I'm fine. Yeah, I, I, that is who I am. It is not another part of a check mark on a list. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, and I know that might be hubris and it might be different from some of you, but that, that questionnaire caused me to think about that. Who really am I? And I, for myself, want to be part of this group of people who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. What does, and I'm speaking to mostly Americans in this room. Because she has lived that out in her life. She's been, she's lived in many countries around the world and her Adventism is her true culture. Is that right? Yeah. What happens when Revelation 13 comes true? When you will either be a faithful, Bible-believing, Seventh-day Adventist Christian or you'll be allowed to remain a United States citizen. We have a whole study, The Mark of the Beast, and it's about the United States and Bible prophecy. And there will be an economic penalty and finally a criminal capital penalty for remaining faithful to God's people. You will have to choose whom you will serve. This, I will not get into a political speech right now. A, because it's not the time for it, and B, it's being recorded. <laughs> right? Exactly. Let me drop it again. Boom. Yeah. It won't matter what the politics are. Well, that's true. It's not, this is not a Democrat-Republican thing. This is not partisan politics. I'm talking about heaven versus earth. That whether it's the United States or any of the other nations that will follow suit, right? All of them are going to go along. We're going to be forced into a choice. Are you going to follow God or are you going to follow man? And, and let me be clear about this. I love being a citizen of the United States of America. This is not against the United States. I'm just looking at Bible prophecy and knowing that the freedoms we have now are fleeting. That we're living in a beautiful window of opportunity. And if we sit back and relax and think, oh, God has given us a time of vacation. because We're not blessed just to be blessed. We're blessed to be a blessing. That's what God called his Old Testament church to be. And that's what we're supposed to be now. The reason we have the freedom and opportunity to do is to get this message out. This is why we have it. And there's a time coming where we won't have the liberties we do. We'll have to do then. That's right. Now let me roll this into one other thing since I've got a couple minutes here and we're already on the topic. And we're thinking about Revelation 13 that the financial penalty will come first for those who remain faithful to God. 
And that we understand is the Seventh-day Adventist church will be persecuted first in a financial way. What is one way the government could conceivably harm the Seventh-day Adventist church financially right away? <laughs> Take away that tax exemption. What if every property, every building, everything we did had to be taxed like any other corporation? And it may not be about the Sabbath at first. What if it's about homosexuality or some other Where thing, right? So what if, and this isn't like, ooh, hyper-speculative kind of conspiracy theory. I'm, talk, I'm reading Revelation chapter 13. I'm seeing these are the issues here. It could play out like this. How would the Seventh-day Adventist church save money? Right here in Michigan, what's something they could do? <laughs> Somebody's like, stop camp meeting. That's a thing. Oh, I don't want it to happen either, but... Yeah, okay. We have institutions, schools... Ah, somebody said it right there. I like that one. Teachers would teach for free. All right, we got missionaries. All right. That missionary mindset would still be there. That's good. I imagine a time where we would have to employ fewer pastors. A lot of the churches are already paid off, right? In the buildings, right? The, the expense is paying pastors. Am I allowed to go here, Mark? <laughs> sure, he says. <laughs> I'm just saying that I think the training center church model where lay people are about the business of winning souls and not just resting on the professional paid clergy is going to be a reality. Sister White says we better learn how to do it now instead of having to learn it later on. This, this idea that the bigger the church gets, the more pastoral help it needs is completely backwards. We must have a trained laity who knows who they are who can take their Bible and share the light with others and can run the prayer meetings and everything, whatever the thing is, without the pastoral help. Now, I think there's a place for pastors. I do. I'm one of them, and I'm not asking to lose my job. But <laughs> Yeah, intensely practical ministry by hundreds and thousands, not by just a select few who are paid for this position. So when we look at these, let's tie it back to our lesson here as we close. When we look at the three angels' messages, Sometimes we think, boy, we need a lot more Mark Finleys and Doug Batchers. No, we need a lot more you. We need three angels' messengers. That's what the Seventh-day Adventist movement was raised up for, is to proclaim this message. Yes, to live it out in our lives, right? Adhere to it ourselves, but to both demonstrate and proclaim the righteousness of Christ and the message of warning to the world. Has, are we being clear? I know it's a little convoluted today, but um, I hope that I hope that we see that there is a great controversy struggle and there is a Babylon fallen church and there is a remnant church of Bible prophecy. It's not just about these are the Protestants who keep Sabbath. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These are the ones who have that three angels message. And if you start thinking about the, the sanctuary and uh, the truth about the second coming and the truth about the state of the dead and then the spirit of prophecy. So find me another denomination that keeps the Sabbath, that tells me the truth about the heavenly sanctuary, that gets the second coming right, that has the truth about hell, and has, the, and has the spirit of prophecy as that guiding voice, what do you do with all that? There's only one that fits. Basically, in a, in a public presentation, this is what I do. I take a whole night and say who the Antichrist isn't, right? And then I take a whole night and show, here's all the biblical quali qualifications, characteristics of the Antichrist power. Now you tell me, who is it? We're looking for one that comes out of Rome at this time and has a spiritual power and that can rule... It's only one power, right? It's inescapable with the Antichrist. In the same way, 
You can do the same thing for the remnant church. I'm looking for a church that, ex that comes up at this time in Earth's history, from the United States of America, that has this message, and it keeps these doctrines. Well, there's only one. There's only one. I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist because they pay me so well, or because I like the, the logo, and I, like, even, I do like haystacks and fried chicken. All that kind of stuff is great, but that's not why I'm here. And I have a great fear that we have a lot of cultural Adventists that are here just because of the subculture. We need Adventists by conviction that are doctrinally sound, who know why they are Seventh-day Adventists. It's not just because I always grew up here or something like that. To say, this is what the Bible teaches. That's why I'm here. All right. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer and I'll give you guys a break. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day again. Thank you for the opportunity you give us to study these things together. Thank you for the, for the power of your word. And we can find our identity and our purpose, our mission, in the pages of Scripture. Please help us to be of those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Who have no guile or deceit in our mouths, but instead, with clearness, with conviction, that we will be those who give this three angels' message to the world. Lord, help us to be your remnant people. Keep us by your power and hasten your soon coming. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, we do thank you again for um, this wonderful camp meeting and the privilege we have here of being together and, and studying your word. Lord, I just ask now that your Holy Spirit would continue with us to guide us and give us understanding, Lord, not just to feed ourselves, but Lord, to be able to proclaim the truth to others that we may uh, that we may all be ready when Jesus comes again. We pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. What we're going to transition to now is the subject of the gift of prophecy. And I have done a lot of teaching in a lot of places on this subject. Um, maybe to give you a little background, uh, and you've caught some of this from my brother Jim, but my parents uh, were divorced when I was younger, and then uh, my, my mom and stepdad are the ones I lived with, and they ended up leaving the Seventh-day Adventist Church when I was about 14 years old, and then uh, Jim's five years younger than me, so he was about nine, as he mentioned, and then I didn't come back into the Adventist church until I was in about 26, and for that period of time, we just, we left church altogether, but they got into the teachings of a guy at the time named Desmond Ford, and some of you have been around Adventism long enough have maybe heard that name, um, but Ford, Ford was attacking, uh, <laughs> What wasn't he attacking? Um, it, well, it, he was attacking the sanctuary. He really was attacking the gospel and the Adventist understanding of the gospel. And uh, I don't have time to get in all the details of that. Um, my brother Jim had talked about the idea of the gospel being, and Daniel touched on it in the sanctuary too, that it's not just justification, but it, it's justification, sanctification. Here we have this full picture. Well, Ford... Um, well, it was a kind of picked up on an evangelical justification only thing, which the sanctuary basically dismantles. And so then he dismantled the sanctuary. And then, he, of course, you, you start saying the sanctuary doesn't, you know, that's not really biblical. And then you have spirit of prophecy writings saying it is biblical. And so you've got to say, well, she's, you know, a false prophet. So all of these things grew out of the Ford movement. So when my parents left the church, of course, you're, th you're throwing away the Sabbath and sanctuary and all these distinctives. And what's interesting to me is, a lot of the, a lot of the, the um, some of the cell point 
of Ford was, you know, just that freedom you have in Jesus. You know, as you Adventist, you got to keep the Sabbath. You got to watch the way you eat. You got all these rules about how you live and just be free in Jesus. And we got so free in Jesus that we never saw him anymore. <laughs> what I mean is, it's funny to me how people will say this, but we didn't just, okay, we're just going to go to another, you know, Sunday church, not worry about it, non-denominator. We just stopped going to church. We didn't have worship in our home. The Lord was gone from our lives. And so I love to hear, and I don't mean I love, but sometimes people tell these testimonies about their freedom in Jesus, and I'm like, look, I've been there. And it's not a free, it's freedom from Jesus is what it is. And so we had that, you know, we lived that way for years. And, but you have to understand that one of the key things that he attacked, that Desmond Ford attacked in his ministry was Ellen White. She's a false prophet, this, that, and the other. So when I began, when I was converted and began coming back to church, just like my brother Jim had said, we had this kind of like, oh, okay, Adventism and all these rules. And it was almost this, this pre-programmed animosity. And so we came back in the church. In fact, when we were baptized, my brother Jim and I were baptized on the same day, April 2, 1994. And so Jim, sometimes he says... Sometimes my brother Jim says, um, my brother Mark and I are, are five years apart and we were born on the same day. <laughs> and my wife, my wife Stephanie, who had no Christian background for the most part, and myself, my brother Jim, were baptized on the same day. And, um, but we talked to the pastor, the pastor who baptized us, and said, look, I, I want to be baptized, but I don't agree with what the Adventist Church teaches about caffeine or jewelry, or Ellen White, and his response was, okay, well, I'll baptize you into Jesus, which I'm a pastor now, and I would never do that. That's dishonest. People, I've had people say, well, hey, you're still here. Yeah, for every one of me, there's a hundred others who didn't make it. You know, I, it was just our, you know, you don't baptize rebelliousness, is what, and that's what it was. But the point is, we, even coming back into the church, had this animosity against, of other, including other things, Ellen White. And that led me, in my experience, to really want to search this out. And in searching it out, I, I, I wanted to see the biblical reasons for why we believed in this gift of prophecy. I, I had to be clear for myself on that. And I did a sermon series in my church when I was in Grand Rapids years ago. It was my first district here in Michigan. And there was a school who used to, used to be here, Arise School, and they had one of their classes, their Spirit of Prophecy class, they'd had different people teach it, and this teacher and the students didn't resonate with, and this one, and it didn't work out. And so they invited me to go speak, and then I just got into doing that. And I've been all over GYC and around the world in different places speaking on, just basically sharing some of those things I found in the gift of prophecy. And... Um, obviously, I don't have time to, to go over what I would do in a 16 or 20 hour course, which much of that course is trying to go through some of the critics, you know, criticisms and what have you. But I don't think you need 16 or 20 hours. I mean, put it this way a critic can always come up with a new criticism. And what's really interesting that a lot of people don't know, so I've mentioned Desmond Ford, and you may not have heard his name. There's a guy today named Dale Ratzlaff who's just picked up Ford's arguments. Way back before him, there's a guy named D.M. Canwright, and that's where Ford got most of his stuff from. So it's like there's nothing new under the sun. The criticisms are repackaged and pawned off on unsuspecting people who don't know the history. And so the devil keeps bringing the same old arguments around. Hey, you know, didn't I think 
Ellen ate oysters somewhere, didn't she? And, you know, didn't, didn't she have a vision and change her mind after this? And you get into all of this, you get on the internet, and you're getting all these things. And it, it, what's unfortunate is, you know, a lot of people don't have the background. They don't understand that most, I was going to say much, most of what you get from the, first of all, you have to understand that a lot, the, a lot of the anti-Adventist websites are run by former Adventists. And, and, and I've given this example before. You know, if you have a, if you, if you have a, uh, a couple that's married and they have a nasty divorce, God forbid that it would happen. But if they have a nasty divorce and then they need a reference, character reference later, you think they're going to go to their spouse? I mean, like, yeah, I want an I wanna unbiased reference. Um, yeah, I'm going to ask this person that I, you know, no. And you, so you want to get a, a good, fair representation of the Adventist church? Let me go to a former Adventist who has an axe to grind. Right? That doesn't make any sense. But that's what happens when people are getting on the internet and they're reading all this stuff. You're getting something from somebody who has an axe to grind. And the reality is that most of the critics and criticisms of Ellen White are blatantly false. And some of them, you got truth mixed with error, and some of them just, it never happened. <laughs> and I mean, um, so I'm not going to get into all the criticisms, but I, what, what I do want to do when I'm sharing with somebody uh, and I'm studying with them, you know, you go into the study on the remnant. One of the identifying characteristics is the gift of prophecy. And usually what we get in an evangelistic meeting or something is you, you get down to the end of that and you say, oh, by the way, you know, here's this woman, Ellen White. And, you know, so all the way you've gone through the Bible, gone through the Bible, here's the gift of prophecy. And then, by the way, Seventh-day Adventists believe that this woman has the gift of prophecy. That's kind of <laughs> new to folks. Um, and so what I did with my Bible doctrines is I, I actually put together two studies. And you'll find the first one if you go back past the remnant study in your binder to the study that says the testimony of Jesus. And I'm going to go ahead and pat. For those of you who don't have a binder, I want you to raise your hands. I need somebody to help me pass out some stuff. So maybe if you have a binder, you can kind of... And Cameron, thank you. you would, uh, there's one of them. And keep your hand up if you don't have a binder so you can get a copy of this study because I'm going to walk through it. And then I need somebody else maybe with a binder who can help pass out the second one. There are two of these. Okay. Okay, I still have hands up over here for, okay, yeah, so the testimony of Jesus and beware of false prophets. And then once you have those in hand, thank you very much, Pastor Cameron. Okay, now if you are using your, it is written lessons, you're going to have one lesson called Prophets and Prophecy. And so I'm, not, I'm going to refer to the Bible docs ones first, um, and then I'll, I'll tell you, you know, we'll, we'll look at a couple things here. Um, I like to go cover a little bit more than this lesson covers, but it's, it's a good lesson. Now here's what I want to start out with before I jump into the lesson, and I'm going to kind of use the lesson to run through it. But I think one of the biggest challenges that we run into when we're sharing the idea of Ellen White and the gift of prophecy is that most Christians are clueless about the gift of prophecy. And that includes Seventh-day Adventists. That's why we're getting tripped up. You know, one of the biggest uh, discussions among Adventists is, does Ellen White take the place of the Bible? Where do we, and, and let me, in, in, does, does, a, does a, let me, Dale Ratzlaff, who is kind of like the modern, Desmond Ford, in a lot of ways, former Adventist, like I said. Dale Ratzlaff um, spoke here in Michigan not 
yeah, it's been some years ago now. And one of our ministers went there from the conference and kind of reported back and said that uh, one, of the, one of Ratzlaff's points, and I've read it and heard it since, is he says that the problem with Adventists is that um, Ellen White is the prism that they allow to color every doctrine. You know, prism is something that refracts the light and makes a little rainbow. And he says, Ellen White is the prism that colors every Adventist doctrine. The problem with Adventists is instead of reading the Bible and taking the Bible as it reads, they have to read it through the lens of Ellen White. Here's my question to you, and you're going to get it wrong, which gives you a clue ahead of time. Is that true? If it's not true for you, then you don't understand what a prophet is. Now, let me put it in a Bible perspective. Let's say you lived in the days of Jeremiah the prophet. Okay? Now, Jeremiah wasn't in the Bible, was he? No. Not when he, not when he was speak. God raised him up from the womb. He says, I've sent you. Don't be afraid of their faces. So Jeremiah comes out. Now, all you have is whatever Bible books are available to you, the writings of Moses and maybe the, you know, some of the you know, Psalms, whatever. Here comes Jeremiah. And Jeremiah begins with his messages. What was the function of the prophet in any age? Did the, fun did the prophet originate truth? The prophet, so what did the prophet do for the people? When God sent a prophet, what was that prophet supposed to do? Okay, help them understand what message? Where was God's message? <laughs> The, pur the purpose of the prophet, now Moses would be in a, a unique kind of distinction because he, he wrote the first books. But when you get into prophets like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, whatever, a big part of their role was pointing God's people to the Bible. Why? Why did God need to send Jeremiah, for example, to point his people back to the Bible? Because they were following it? No. Had they followed it, they never would have needed the prophet, right? The reason God had to raise up a prophet, he'd say, listen, you guys claim to be my people. And then you'll hear these words in the prophets. You claim to be, but you, 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 you uh, how did the Lord say it? Um, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me, right? So he would say things like that. And the prophets would say, you claim to follow me. Let me point out a few things here. And he'd go through, and the prophet would point out what God had said and said, you're not following what I said, right? He was pointing them back to the word. So here comes Jeremiah the prophet, and he's preaching to God's people, and he says, thus saith the Lord. While you guys are saying this here, and you're claiming to be God's people, yet at the same time, and he point out the scripture, and he say, you say you're following this, God says you're not following it. Now here's the question. Are you supposed to allow Jeremiah to color your understanding of Scripture? What, is, you know, what does that mean? In other words, okay, God sent a prophet to you and said, you're, you're following. So here, I say, I'm following the Bible. And the prophet says, you're not following it. This is what it says, and you're not doing it. And I say, I don't agree with you that that's what it says. This is how I read it. What am I doing? I'm rebelling against the prophet of God. Did Israel do that? Repeatedly. So here's what happens. As we as Adventists, we get skittish when somebody starts saying, oh, you guys take this Ellen White, you let her color your, 
Well, shouldn't we? In other words, the question isn't whether or not she colors our understanding. The question is, is she a prophet of God or not? In any age, if you're in any age where God has a prophet, you better let that prophet affect your understanding because the prophet was sent to correct your understanding. Now, there are tests of the prophet. You know, you've got to make sure it's a true prophet of God. But when you have a true prophet of God, be it, but let's move, let's move to the New Testament. The Apostle Paul had the prophetic gift, right? So here you've got a whole nation of Jews who claim to be following the Bible, and they've just crucified the Messiah. So here comes the prophet, Paul in his prophetic or apostolic function, which are both different, and says to God's people, you guys are saying that you're following this, but let me point out where you've gone contrary in Scripture. You've rejected your Messiah. Now, should I let the Apostle Paul color my understanding of the Old Testament? Should the Jews have allowed what Paul said to color their understanding? What happened to the Jews who did allow Paul to color their understanding of Old Testament scriptures? They accepted Jesus as the true Messiah. They repented of their sin and crucifying him, etc. What happened to the people who rejected him? They said, no, Paul, we got the, look, we got the Bible. We don't need you. I want you to see something interesting. I think I... I don't know if I have this in one of the studies or not, but I want you to see it in John 9. John 9, now I want you to go to verse 26. This is the man who was born blind who Jesus heals, okay? And the, 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 the leaders keep asking him, who, who did this to you? And the man keeps telling him, I, I'm not, I don't know. And he says, um, no, 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 he didn't. He told him, he told him Jesus had done this to him. And they weren't happy with that. And so in verse 26, it says, When they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them and said, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow... We don't know where he is from. Now, here, uh, let's, I want to I connect some dots. I want you to understand what they're saying in our modern time, what this would be. Who was Moses to them? The scripture. Who was Jesus to them? You know, Jesus came in the role of a prophet, too. The Bible says that in the book of Acts and in other places. Peter says it on the, on the, uh, 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 in his final speech. Stephen says it in his final speech. A prophet, mighty in word and deed, who came among us, Right? So Jesus is in the role of the modern prophet. What they basically say, hey, we have the Bible and the Bible only. We don't need this guy. Right? Was that the right answer? What should they have been saying? Hey, we need to know what Jesus said. You want to be his disciples? Yes, we want to be his disciples. No, we don't need this guy. We already have the Bible. How many Christians are doing the same thing today? And they, and they, and they kind of in a, in a kind of, I'm a, I don't need any, anybody else. If you didn't need anybody else, God wouldn't have sent you anybody else. And I want to say this for Seventh-day Adventists. I, I, this is funny to me. I've had Seventh-day Adventists, I'll say, you know, I've shared things in Spirit of Prophecy that say, I don't see it that way. You ever run into that? I'm not going to ask you if you've said it. I just don't see it the way she says it. Of course you don't. That's why God sent the prophet. If you saw it that way, he wouldn't have needed to send the prophet. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, the reason that God always sent prophets is a prophet saw things that we didn't see, especially about our own hearts. Here's King David, and I don't know if you've thought about this, but David commits sin with Bathsheba. 
and then to cover it up, has her husband murdered and then sits on the throne and invites her into his house and she becomes his wife for a whole year. You know, sometimes it's like we think this happened in like a few weeks and then Nathan the prophet comes in and it's all over. For a whole year, David sits on his throne self-satisfied partially because what he did with Bathsheba was no different than all the other kings in the nations. And that was what tripped David up is, all kings do this, why can't I do it? You ever run into that? You ever tempted to think that way? Well, I don't know why it's wrong. I mean, so-and-so in the church does it. My pastor does it. I mean, you know, you go whoever. And so here's David for a whole year thinking nothing of what he's done. And Nathan the prophet, God sends a prophet in and tells him that story and then says, you are the man. And what happens? David sees something in his heart he never could have seen otherwise. Should David have allowed Nathan to color his understanding? <laughs> you understand, the, the whole idea of it, the, the devil packages things sometimes to put us on the defensive. To, to allow a prophet to color under, our understanding is not saying the prophet is originating our doctrine. It's not saying the prophet is taking the place of the Bible. It's allowing the prophet to function in the way the prophet always has functioned, the way God sent the prophet to function. And so that's why I say a lot of people, even among Adventists, when we don't understand what a prophet is and what a prophet does, then we, how do we answer questions about prophets? And so I think it's important for people to understand what the gift of prophecy is. And that's what the Testament of Jesus chapter uh, study is dealing with. So I'm going to walk through this with you. I'm not going to look up every passage. But in question number one, asks this, what spiritual gift is an identifying characteristic of God's last day church? And the first text I have is Revelation 19.10. For those who have been in here, I already told you this is primarily because I would have used 12.17, but for Bible marking, I've already used 12.17, and then it messes up my Bible marking, so I use Revelation 19.10 in the parentheticals 12.17. But I would typically go to 12.17 where we did in our remnant study. That, that remnant church, these are the ones who uh, keep the commandments of God and they have the testimony of Jesus Christ which will typically then go to Revelation 19.10 and, and, and clarify that. Now, I do need to do this with you. I haven't done it in this particular study, but I will tell you that one of the biggest, most popular criticisms of, our, of, of this, uh, the idea of the gift of prophecy being a characteristic of the remnant church, that's one of the biggest criticisms of the critics. They say, you guys are reading the Bible wrong. Uh, the, the, the gift of prophecy is not a characteristic of the remnant church. For example, Revelation 12, uh, 17 says, The dragon was enraged with a woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. What your, what the critics will say, and, and this is in and out of the church, folks. You'll hear this in the church. There's a lot of, Seventh-day Adventists, I don't understand it totally, who are in the church who really don't want to be. And they want the church to be different than the Adventist church. There are a lot of people in the Adventist church campaigning that we be something else. Like, you're like, why are you coming here? They don't like our standards. They don't like the gift of prophecy. They don't like these. They keep coming, but they're always, and they're all, you want to make a change, and you start to make a change in their diet. Like, what are you doing that for? And you want to start dressing a different way, and they're like, oh, you're so legal. It's like, why are you here? <laughs> It's like, this is what we believe as a church. I don't know, you, you probably encountered this. If not, you're in a little bubble called Michigan. Because, um, but it's here too, okay? But the point is that 
when you're dealing with the testimony of Jesus, um, the critics will tell you correctly, testimony of Jesus can refer to or also be translated testimony about Jesus. Okay? The Greek can be taken either way. And so this is where the critics will go. They'll say, well, it really shouldn't read the testimony of Jesus. The characteristic of the remnant church is it's a testimony about Jesus. Now, this is how that changes. Testimony of Jesus means it's coming from Jesus. And the way then that it would read is a prophet is giving a message that came from Jesus through the prophet to his people. But a testimony about Jesus means, oh, no, no, this is, it's not talking about a testimony of Jesus coming through a prophet. It's saying that the, one of the identifying characteristics is that, okay, the two, the two identifying characteristics here are they keep the commandments of God and they have a testimony about what Jesus has done in their life and it has nothing to do with the gift of prophecy. And uh, I, have, I still have an article that I saved from Dale Ratzeff on this where he has this magazine he sends out. He gets an Adventist mailing list, and it's called Proclamation, and he'll send it out to Adventists and try to undermine their faith with stuff like this, huh? Ratzlaff. R-A-T-Z-L-A-F-F. I believe his parents live here in Michigan, and they're not real happy about the whole thing. But testimony about Jesus. He goes into this four-page article on how the testimony of Jesus in Revelation 12, 17 refers to the fact that God's last day people have testimony about Jesus. And he goes to all these different passages in Scripture where he shows, and there are times where it does mean that, like I said, in Scripture. And so he goes and shows those places. But what's interesting is there's one passage he never goes to, and I want to show you that passage. Now, it's not Revelation 19.10. He looks at that. Usually we look at Revelation 12, 17, and we say, well, what is this testimony of Jesus? We go to Revelation 19, 10. And Revelation 19, 10 says, And I fell at his feet to worship him. John's speaking about this angel who's showing him these things. I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your what? Fellow servant and of your brethren who have the what? The testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is... The spirit of prophecy. Now, what's really interesting is in Ratzlaff's article, he mentions that text. He talks about how the testament of Jesus then is actually talking about, about Jesus. In some of your new translations, that's exactly what they'll say. If you're reading, I'm not, I'm not sure off the top of my head if that's how the NIV reads or something, but some of them will say testimony about Jesus in your Bible. Okay, So he makes that point, but what he never does is answers okay, what does this part about the spirit of prophecy mean then? <laughs> you know? Um, but I've heard some people comment, and it's just like, you know, just like the prophets told about Jesus, so they have a testimony about Jesus. Okay? Now, here, here's what I want to get to. It's not really that complicated, because John clears it up in one more verse that we're going to look at. And that's Revelation 22, 8 and 9. The same author, the same book, gives us, clarity on where he's going with the testament of Jesus. So there's no, there needs to be no question as to what he's pointing out as the identifying characteristic. Revelation 22, 8. Revelation 22, 8. John says, Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Okay, now I want you to notice the imagery here is what we just saw in Revelation 19, 10. You can go back and forth and compare it. Just like then, he said he fell down before the feet of the angel. 
And the angel says to him in verse nine, he said to me, what? See that you do not do that. Okay, hold your finger there and look at 1910. You're going to see this exact same thing that we just read. Again, in verse 10, see that you do not do that. I am your what? Fellow servant and of your brethren who do what? Now, I want you to, I want you to get this. He says, I'm going to take this off. I am your fellow servant. He tells John. And he says, I am of, or I'm one of your brethren, and describes them as what? A brethren who, what? Have the testimony of Jesus. Okay, I just don't want you to miss that. So, he's a fellow servant, the angel says, and he's one of the brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Who are the brethren? They're the ones who have the testimony of Jesus. Now notice 22. In 22, 9, you know, John falls down. He says, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren what? Who are the brethren? They're the prophets. Who are the people who have the testimony of Jesus? They're the prophets, okay? In other words, you can't get around this when John gives his explanation. You come to Revelation 22, he's very clear that the brethren I'm talking about who have the testament of Jesus, they're the prophets. Which makes perfect sense then why in 1910 he says, worship God for the testament of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Okay, there doesn't need to be any question in the mind of Seventh-day Adventists. And you've got to ask yourself why a self-proclaimed scholar would write a four-page article trying to make his point about the testament of Jesus and, oh, you know what? I did just happen to miss that one text in Revelation 22, 8 and 9. It's not anywhere in his article. It goes all over the Bible. You'd think you would start. You know, if I'm wanting to know how the Bible uses a certain word, I would start with the same author in the same book. The closest I can get to the author explaining his usage of the, is say, okay, did he use that phrase anywhere else in this book? And yet, right there, Revelation, a few verses away, it's nowhere in his article. Why? Because it disproves the whole thing. His whole article is to try to say Seventh-day Adventists are off the you know, deep end, trying to prove this spirit. It has nothing to do with the gift of prophecy. Folks, it has everything to do with the gift of prophecy. So Revelation 22, Revelation 22, 8 and 9 just explains Revelation 19, 10. And I want you to understand this. I always ask this question, actually, and I, I, I asked it a little differently a minute ago. But when you come to Revelation 19, two, uh, 10, there are three characteristics in Revelation 19.10, not two. And of course, we always talk about the keeping the commandments of God as one of the characteristics of the remnant church. And the other is they have the testimony of Jesus. But there is a third, very clear and important characteristic in Revelation 19.10 of the remnant church. Anybody know what it is? There is a third characteristic of the remnant church in Revelation 19.10. It's not that they keep the commandments. It's not that they have the testimony of Jesus. It's not the worshiping part. Very clear. And when I, if, I, if I have to say it, you'll be like, ah! What's the very first thing? The, the dragon is enraged with the woman. Listen to me carefully. One of the identifying characteristics of the remnant church is the devil hates it. How would you expect the devil to publicize or what publicity to give to this church that he hates. 
Folks, if you find a church that has everything, everybody says good things about it, that's not the remnant church. I had people come into my meetings that say, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, and it's all been from the Bible, it's been so good, but then I'm talking to my pastor, and, you know, and, and he pointed me to stuff on the internet, and man, they say some bad stuff about your church, and I say, praise God. That's one of the identifying characteristics of the remnant church. Isn't it? What did Jesus say in Luke 6.46? Woe to you, or is it this 6.26? Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers of the false prophets who were before you. You don't speak well of the true prophets. They stone the true prophets. And so just understand, it's Luke 6.26 or 46, and I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, one of the two. But the point is this. It, 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 it shouldn't alarm us when people come up with all this stuff about the spirit of prophecy. I mean, when, when the, when, again, in the context of Revelation 19.10, the devil hates the remnant church, but what two things does he especially hate? <laughs> the commandments? Why? Why does he hate the commandments so much? What is the function of God's laws we learned the other day? What is the function of it? I heard it over here. Romans 3.20, by the law is the knowledge of sin. And what happens when I see sin? Now I need Christ. I see my need for Christ, right? What about the prophets? What are the prophets doing? They're helping me see the sin that I can't see to point me to Christ. The devil hates it. He would much rather have us never know our need of Christ. Okay? So, you know, understand these things. Some people come out and they have their criticisms. It's to be expected. So the first thing in the study, you know, I, and I don't, I don't go into all the Revelation 22, 8, and 9 necessarily. I have been going into more stuff than I used to. Um, usually I want to make sure that a person at some point has some source. Because if, you, if you're studying with somebody and they come into the Seventh-day Adventist Church, it's not going to be too long, if not already, they haven't been exposed to some of this anti-Adventist stuff. And you've got to have a way of dealing with that. And there are some good resources for that, but um, I'm giving you the 22, 8, and 9, this background, because here's the thing. You've got, we've been saying this all week, you've got to be confident in this. If you're like, oh, well, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe that isn't one of the identifying characters. Maybe we're all wrong on this. Then you're not going to be able to teach it. You've got to be confident that this is what the Scripture says. And folks, we are standing on solid footing. When we say the testament of Jesus is the gift of prophecy, that's one of God's character. I mean, honestly, you're giving identifying characteristics. If I tell you to go pick somebody up at the airport, you're like, who do I look for? Look for the guy in jeans and tennis shoes. Oh, okay, I'll spot him right away. I mean, identifying characteristics need to be unique, right? Oh, you know, look, the last day church just believes in, and then, and of course, they make the commandments of God that you believe you should love. They believe you should love and that you, you talk about Jesus. Oh, yeah, there's, there's, there, that's, there's not, that's really narrows it down for professed Christians. I mean, every professed Christian does that. What are the unique, it's they keep the commandments of God, including the Sabbath commandment, and they have the gift of prophecy. Now, that narrows it down. That's the point of unidentifying characteristic. Yes? Well, even though, yeah, I'm not, I don't have writings like Ellen White, but by learning this and then teaching it as members of the, Church, we are becoming I wouldn't say that. Wouldn't go that I wouldn't go that far. And here, here's why. And I want to make this distinction. We're going to see it in the study. And 
understand something about prophets. There is no other gift like the prophet. And, and the difference in the prophet is what we call, and if you've been going to, you haven't been because you've been here, <laughs> but you're going to get the information, right, from Dr. Wallin's seminar on inspiration. Inspiration is the term we use to describe, basically, the writings of prophets, right? The Bible is inspired. It's not like another book. You know, there are a lot of good Christian books, and we use the word inspired loosely in the Christian church today. We say, oh, you know, that book, I think that book is inspired. Oh, that speaker is inspired. No, they're not. Inspiration in a theological sense is something that only happens to a prophet. It's a direct communication from God to the prophet. And God guides that communication. Um, you know, so something else may be inspirational. But the writings of prophets, the reason that's important is, the reason scripture is so important to us is because it's inspired. It's not the words of man, even though God employed man to write it. It's the word of God. It is, it, it, there's not error mixed in with it. I mean, I can buy something from the best author in the ABC, and yet there's going to have, I, I, can't, I can't be like, hey, you know, well, excluding inspired writers. Ellen White, if she was a prophet of God, just like the Bible prophets, what that means is you don't have human philosophies or ideologies or opinions mixed in with it. Okay, her and, and that, her writings are considered inspired because right. we believe she was a prophet. Okay. And that's where the difference would be, right. where we wouldn't say, you know, where we can, we can communicate the words of the prophets, yeah. but to be a prophet is to have that connection, um, the inspired connection. And I'm, you know, we talk, we, we, sometimes people get confused because of the setting that we're in. We talk a lot about Ellen White in regard to the spirit of prophecy, but some of the Adventists don't believe the spirit of prophecy is Ellen White. We believe the spirit of prophecy is all the prophets, way back from the beginning. You know, we just are talking in a present-day context generally. But the spirit of prophecy, the gift of prophecy, is something God has always used. So the lesson is going to cover that. So let's uh, uh, move through here. Uh, number one, what spiritual gift is an identifying characteristic of God's last day church? Uh, and you're picking up from your remnant study. In fact, I think I do bring up the 2289 in the remnant study. Now we come into this study, it's just review. Oh, it's the gift of prophecy. Well, question number two, according to the Bible, what exactly is a prophet? Let's look at Exodus 14. I'm not going to look up all the texts, but I do want you to see this one. Exodus, not 14, Exodus 4, verse 14, we'll start in. This is where God calls Moses to lead his people to go talk to Pharaoh, etc., etc., and Moses basically says, Lord, I'm not competent to do this. I can't do this. Send somebody else to do this, etc. So it says in Exodus 4, verse 14, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well, and look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and do what? Put the words where? In his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your what? Spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. Now I want you to go a few pages forward to Exodus 7 and look at what the Lord says here. Exodus 7, verse 1. What did he just say he was going to make Aaron to Moses? 
his spokesperson. Moses would be in the position of God and Aaron would be his mouthpiece, right? Look at what Exodus 7, 1 says. So the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you as God to Pharaoh and Aaron, your brother shall be your prophet. Now we just put the two together and what does the Bible say a prophet is? It's a mouthpiece or a spokesperson. And this is really important because what do you think most people think a prophet is? Somebody who predicts the future. Do all prophets predict the future? No. The greatest of the prophets, according to Jesus, was John the Baptist. And John really didn't have any future predictions. And he didn't do miracles. And, you know, a number of different things. So what the unique thing about a prophet in every age, was that a prophet in the Bible is a, mouth person, a mouthpiece, a spokesperson. And I have it in the notes here that in the Old Testament, the word that's used for prophet is the Hebrew word nabi, which means, guess what? I'll give you one guess what the word nabi means in Hebrew. Spokesperson, right? The word translated prophet, spokesperson. New Testament Greek word is prophetes. What do you think it means? Spokesperson, okay? So just understand that a prophet is a spokesperson for God. And I share this in the study. So number three, what did God promise to put in the prophet Jeremiah's mouth? I'm not going to look this up. It's just going a step further. And the Lord tells Jeremiah that I'm, he touched the prophet's mouth and he says, I put my words in your mouth. And it's just taking it a step further and showing. And, and, oh, incidentally, in that passage, God tells Jeremiah, I have ordained you as a prophet to the nations. And so we just have scripture confirmation that a prophet is somebody in whom, whose mouth God puts his words. He becomes a spokesperson for God. Question number four, how long has God used prophets to communicate his will? Let's look at it in Luke 1. Luke chapter 1 and verse 70. Luke has long chapters. It says in Luke 1 verse 70, as he spoke by them. In fact, but let's go to verse 68 to get some context here. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he, the Lord, spoke by the mouth of his, what? Holy, Holy prophets who have been since, what? The world began. And so the question is, how long has God used prophets to communicate his will? He's always used prophets to communicate his will. And a point that I like to make to people is this. And let me ask it this way. Tell me the different ways God has communicated with his people throughout the ages. Give me some examples. Dreams. Did everybody who received a dream, was everybody who received a dream a prophet? Give me an example. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar's one, right? Okay, and we could give up, you know, Pharaoh had dreams and Joseph interpreted and that kind of thing. What other ways has God communicated with his people? Okay, visions, similar dreams. Donkeys, okay, it's true, it's true. What else? Okay, face to face, which is theophany, they call that. What else? Okay, the fleece, the Urim and the Thummim, right? In other words, there, there are a number of different ways God communicated. He communicated from the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. What's that? Handwriting on the wall, right? Handwriting in the sand when Jesus wrote. So there's, there's a number of ways that God has communicated. He's not limited. But let me ask you this. What is his chosen method? What do we see most of the time? Prophets. In other words, prophets, you know, they're... they're you got to understand that God, it, I'm, it's not up to me or you to dictate how God's going to communicate to me, right? I can be like, Lord, no, no, no. If you got something to say to me, you say it yourself. 
No, God chooses. And God, in Scripture, we find that through all the ages, his, his chosen method of communication has been through the prophets. And I like to bring out here that the Bible is the product of the prophetic gift. Right? We would not have it. A lot of people don't put that together. They're like, well, prophets, well, I kind of like my Bible. Good. You like the prophets then, because the prophets, we consider everybody who wrote in the Bible, that they wrote by the gift of inspiration, which is given to prophets. You don't always think of King Solomon as a prophet, but he was a prophet. He wrote in Scripture. Everybody who wrote in Scripture had the prophetic gift. That's, that, that's the means that they wrote by. That's inspiration. And so the Bible is the product of the prophets. Now, there were some people who heard the prophets speak or received communication from the prophets, but now we live way beyond Jeremiah and Isaiah. How do we know what they said? How do we benefit? Right here. Right? The scripture is the testimony of prophets to us today. So God has always used prophets to communicate his will. And that's what uh, number, the next one, number, question number five, how do we benefit from the messages of the prophets? It talks about the prophetic word or the prophetic scriptures in Romans 1, 2. So just making that point that we benefit because the prophets, some of the prophets wrote things down. I don't know that I go into it here in this particular study. Yes, I guess I did. I, so I'll, I'll, we'll come up to it. So anyway, not all the prophets wrote, which we'll see in a minute, but that's how we benefit is the prophets communicated by putting it in Scripture. Question number six, how does Peter say, who does Peter say spoke through the Old Testament prophets? And I really like this one. I want you to look at it in 1 Peter chapter 1. I remember the first time I stumbled upon this. I mean, you don't stumble because the Lord leads you into, into things, but it was so cool. 1 Peter chapter 1 and starting in verse 10. So after the book of Hebrews, you have James and 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1 verse 10. And it's a little wordy here. Peter's talking about something else, but you get the point in a minute. Peter's talking about the gospel message, the plan of salvation that God has always known, but it wasn't always clear to man. And so he says in verse 10, of this salvation, basically that I've been telling you about, he says, of this salvation, the who? The prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them, who's them? The prophets. It was revealed that not to themselves, but to who? To us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Now, the basic point Peter's making is this plan of salvation even the prophets wrote about it, but the prophets who wrote about it didn't understand it as clearly as you're understanding it. The prophets who wrote about it searched their own prophecies trying to understand what they were pointing to. And they came to the realization that it was not for themselves. What does he say? It was revealed to them, not to themselves, but to us they were ministering these things. That those prophecies were going to find their fulfillment down in the future. Okay? Now that's not the point. <laughs> But I'm trying to have you understand the passage, and now I want to make the point out of it. But do you understand the point, what, what Peter's saying here? He's just saying, he's talking about how the prophets foretold the coming of Christ, and it really didn't meet its, people didn't understand it as clearly until Christ actually came. And he says, now we're preaching the gospel to you, and you can see how Christ fulfilled what the prophets said. That's his point. 
But here's what I want to zero in on. As he's talking about this, he talks about the prophets. And then he says in verse 11, searching what or what manner of time, the spirit of who? The spirit of Christ, who was where? In who? In the prophets. The spirit of Christ, who was in them, was indicating when he, the spirit of Christ, did what? Testified beforehand. In other words, way back when the prophets wrote, Christ testified through them. When a person testifies, we might say that they're giving their what? Testimony. Who was in the prophets giving his testimony, according to Peter? Hmm, Jesus was in the prophets giving his testimony. So could we call the gift of prophecy the testimony of Jesus? And that's exactly what John does in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, right? And so here's just another confirmation of that. But here's the question we want to ask, and it's asked in the, in the study. Who does Peter say spoke through the Old Testament prophets? Christ. It was the spirit of Christ. You know, this blows some Christians away. So for some reason, they think that Jesus, for some reason, is his, his existence started there in Bethlehem. He had pre-existence. And Jesus spoke, according to the Bible, we know that the prophet is a spokesperson for God, but which one of the Godhead speaks through the prophets? According to the Bible, Christ does, right? He does it through the Holy Spirit, but Peter says Jesus spoke through the prophets. Who is it that speaks through Ellen White? According to the Bible, Jesus is the one who speaks through the prophets. How, 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 come away from that and ask yourself this question. If Jesus speaks through the prophet, can a prophet not be Christ-centered? be kind of hard for Christ not to be Christ-centered, right? Not to be balanced, not to be gospel-focused, right? We hear this stuff about Ellen White, and that's why I'm bringing it up. People say, oh, yeah, you know, just, you know, her writings are, maybe it's not her writings, maybe it's your thinking. We have a lot more confidence in our thinking than in what the prophets say, unfortunately. But that's, that's why God sent the prophets. But the point here is simply that Jesus, the prophet was the spokesperson for God, and specifically the Bible says it was Jesus who spoke to the prophet and testified through the prophets. That's, that was that voice, and, and I make that connection with Revelation 19.10. That's why it says the testimony of Jesus is the, is the spirit of prophecy. Question number seven. Was the gift of prophecy also active in the New Testament church? Now, I'm not going to look these up, but you find prophets all over in the New Testament church. This is also news to a lot of Christians. They just don't, they don't, they don't study it. And it's interesting that you, you can go to church and hear stuff, and if you're not studying it, you're not reading it, you're not thinking about it, you know, they just heard your presentation on this Ellen White, and they're just like, ah, I don't know. And then they're here, and they're like, what? Then you find prophets in Acts chapter 11, in Acts chapter 15, in Acts chapter 21. And then I have in parentheses, you know, I put text in parentheses, I told you they're supplemental. You notice there's no verse there, right? Why? Because it's the whole book. Let me ask you how the whole book answers the question. Were there prophets in the New Testament church? Hmm, let's see. Can I think of a single prophet in the New Testament? Let's see. Oh, there's a whole book written by a prophet called Revelation. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, so yes, was the, was the gift of prophecy active in the New Testament church? Yes, we see the gift of prophecy there. Question number eight, how long was the gift of prophecy to continue with the church? Ephesians chapter four. Look here with me in Ephesians chapter four. Start in verse 11. This is talking about when Christ ascended to heaven and then he poured out these spiritual gifts. And it says in verse 11, he himself gave some to be apostles, some what? Prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers 
for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. When, when would you imagine that's going to be? When are we reaching that state of existence? The measure of the stature. I mean, that's a crowning work, right? That's, that's when Jesus comes. Notice the verse right before, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry. What does that include, the work of ministry? The work of ministry, what, what's another way of saying that? The preaching of what? The gospel. When's that going to be finished? But right when Je before Jesus comes, right? It's got to go to the whole world. Okay, so understand something. God gave not just prophets, but apostles, evangelists, pastors. He gave these gifts for the purpose of doing a job. Would it make any sense for him to take any of those gifts away until the job's done? Like, here, I'm going to give you this tool to finish this job. Okay, oh, great. You know, that'll help me out. You're halfway through the job, and I come and say, hey, I'm going to take that back. And I hope you get done soon. You know, what is that about? It makes no sense. But you have to understand that much of the Christian world will say, oh no, the gift of prophecy ended with the canon of the scripture. In other words, about 100 AD, no more prophets. You understand that's a teaching that's common in the Christian church, in, at least in different places, especially among former Adventists who want to say, oh yeah, the gift of prophecy, that doesn't, it doesn't function in the church anymore. What? Where do you get that from? It's not from scripture. Right? In Scripture, we have right here that these gifts are going to be... Of course, we have evidence of prophets in the New Testament Scripture. There's no indication that they're not going to be prophets, that God's going to take away prophets. And you have in Ephesians 4 that they're going to, the function of the prophets is going to be in the church until the coming of Christ, until this work is done. The saints, the equipping of the saints, the work of ministry, the edifying of the body of Christ, the mission has to be carried out. So the question, how long was the gift of prophecy to continue with the church until... The mission was accomplished until the Christian church reaches that level of maturity before the coming of Christ. Does that make sense? Right. I mean, you, I mean, this is just, you can go to Joel, you can go to other places in Scripture. This is just, we're just scratching the surface. But it, it you know, makes the point clear. And one, one of the things in a Bible study is you're wanting to take those texts that make the point clear. Oftentimes there are other places you could go, but sometimes... Did I, tell, did I tell you guys, did I, I'm tr I was telling somebody the other day, was, ta was I talking here about Jan Andrews, Ellen White's counsel to Jan Andrews, how he knew all the different languages, and she told him not to bury the seed so deep, you remember that? You know, you gotta, they, they, sometimes I say this, I'm, I'm, a, I'm at fault here, I do this, I'm terrible with this. I so want to prove things. <laughs> and so I'll be like, okay, no, 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 here's not one text, here's 532 texts, and we're going to sit and listen to them all. The, you get, you, sometimes you get in your mind that people aren't deciding because you didn't give them enough texts. That's not why people don't make decisions. People don't make decisions because they're stubborn. And the, and the they is, is we, right? We've all been there. And so what you want to do in a Bible study is you want to take the text that makes the point clear. Ephesians 4, you really don't get much clearer than that. You might go to another passage, and you can add, and I'm not telling you never to add anything, but I'm just saying, it's clear. These gifts are in the church until this happens. No Christian's going to be like, oh, you know what, the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ, when's that going to come? I think that's now. No, they're not going to be like, now? They're going to they, they're be with you. It's going to be when Jesus comes. Okay, great. When are the gifts going to be in the church till? What about the, the ministry and the preaching of the gospel? When's that going to be finished? You know, I mean, they're going to resonate with that. It's a clear passage. And it makes the point. 
So, and, and this is where I told you when you're putting a, su a study together, you might have a text that you like that you think is clearer. Use it. Use it. Instead of the other, just supplement it or substitute it, but, you know, make sure it makes the point, conveys the point. Now, number nine. Did all prophets write books of the Bible? I've got just one verse we're going to look at, again, to make the point. And uh, there are lots more that could be looked at, but this establishes it in 2 Chronicles 9. And this is important for, for Seventh-day Adventists. I mean, I remember learning this and thinking, oh, I didn't realize this before. Um, a lot of what we're doing in this lesson is just acquainting them with what the Bible says about prophets. Once you understand what the Bible says about prophets, it's a lot easier to talk about prophets and, and, and have realistic expectations. Second Chronicles chapter 9 and verse 29. Now notice what it says here. Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon, first and last, are they not written in the book of Nathan the prophet, in the prophecy of Ahijah the Shilonite, and in the visions of Edo, the seer, concerning Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. How many of you have read the book of Nathan? If you have, it's, it's a counterfeit, okay? Because we don't have a book of Nathan. One of these lost books people come up with. Okay, but the Bible says the prophet Nathan wrote a book. It says Ahijah the prophet, Edo the prophet. Right? There's three. So the question is, did all prophets write books of the Bible? Evidently not. And in the, in the parentheses you have, or in, not parentheses, but in the italics, you have the explanation. Uh, there are three, when you're talking in theological circles, there's three kinds of prophets that we talk about. There are prophets that we call canonical. Okay? The canon is a word that's used in theology. It means library, and it talks about the it's basically the, the, the scripture. We see the canon of scripture. The books in the Bible are the canon. A canonical prophet would be a prophet like Jeremiah or Isaiah or Daniel or somebody included in there or Paul or whatever. I'm sorry. Um, not canonical, but literary canonical. Literary means they wrote something and canonical means it was in the canon of scripture. But there's also... According to the Bible, literary non-canonical, right? We just read them. There are prophets who wrote, but their writings aren't included in the scripture. Just because they were a prophet didn't mean they made it into the scripture. Why? I don't know. God didn't explain to us why. He saw fit to put in what he did. Are you following that? Now, why is this important? Because it gives us a biblical precedent for Ellen White. Some people say, oh, she's a prophet of God. Why didn't God make sure she was put in? If she, if she was so important and everything. Well, just the same way he didn't with Edo or Nathan or whatever. And then, of course, there are the third class is non-literary. That means they didn't write any book or whatever. And then non, obviously non-canonical because you can't include it in if it wasn't written. So it's, a, so it's helpful to know sometimes the different that not all prophets that wrote were included in Scripture. That's question number nine. Did all the prophets write books of the Bible? No, there are prophets who didn't write books of the Bible. There are prophets who didn't write anything as far as we know. They just gave verbal testimonies. They were non-literary. And then there are prophets who did write things, but their writings weren't included in the Bible. So it's just however God saw fit to use that prophet for that time. Question number ten. What was the primary function of the gift of prophecy. 
Now, Isaiah 8.20, can somebody tell me what Isaiah 8.20 says? To the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is what? No light in them. Anybody know what that word is that's translated law there? Oh, good. Torah. And the word Torah, if you're reading ahead. <laughs> Torah means, I've asked people, Torah means law. No, Torah doesn't mean law. Torah means instruction. And, and uh, the reason I want to bring this out is, and I do this in the study when I'm sharing, on, uh, especially in the gift of prophecy, first thing God says to the law and to the testament. Now we know he, he's referring to the scripture here. And what he's saying is you've got to compare everything to scripture. It's got to be according to scripture. But when we're talking about the function of the gift of prophecy, he says to the law and the testimony. What do you think testimony refers to? The testimony of Jesus, right? Sometimes the Bible just calls it the testimony, the testimony of Jesus. So the law in the Torah, incidentally, for the Hebrews, what did the Torah refer to? Anybody know? First five books of the Bible, books of Moses. Well, Job is one of books of Moses too, but that's the five books are the books of Torah, okay? Well, it was the foundation. In other words, the first thing they had were the books of Moses. And that provided the foundation. And then afterwards, the prophets came to point them back. In other words, God had all this foundation truth for them, and the prophets would come back and point the people back. And so you go through the Bible and you find this phrase a lot, either the law and the prophets or the law and the testimony. So in the New Testament, Jesus talks about, he refers the people back to everything was written about him in the law and the prophets and the Psalms. And the Psalms was the songbook. Yes. I'd have to look at the I'd have to look at the word the original word there but you a lot of times you'll find the psalms will talk about the law and the statutes and the judgments and the testimonies and they're all very similar they're all very similar so they're all talking about the body of truth that God committed in one way or the other the reason I'm bringing it out this way here is in the Hebrew you have to understand that in the Hebrew mind you have the law and the prophets the law was that original instruction and then every prophet that came along complemented that, okay? And the law, that original instruction, that's what, that's what the word means. It was instruction. It was the instruction of God. And so the prophet's role was to point back to the instruction. And that's always been the role of the prophet. When God sent a prophet, the prophet pointed God's people back to his instruction that they said they were following and weren't following. And so when it says to the law and the testimony... It's you've got to be in harmony with that which God has given as the instruction. And every prophet that would come after, he wasn't creating something new, but he was pointing back to, pointing back to the, the uh, uh, original truth that God had entrusted to his people. And that's the second half of the italicized part. It says the main function of the prophets, the testimony, has always been to point God's people back to his instruction as given in the scriptures. In short, the prophets point to the Bible as the rule of faith and practice for the Christian. And that's what we believe today. We're not in creating some new thing. Number 11, why do we need prophets if we already have the, the Bible? Proverbs 16.25, we saw this the other, the other day in Proverbs 14.12, so it really helps with Bible marking that, that Solomon says it twice, that in Proverbs 16.25 says, there's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is what? The way of death. And so the, the point, why do we need the prophet if we already have the Bible? Because we tend to do things our own way. 
Psalm 32, 8 is where the, the Lord says that um, I will guide you with my eye. I can't, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember the rest. I will, thank you. I will teach you and instruct you in the way that you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Okay? It's interesting. The next verse says, don't be stubborn like the mule. Yes. Right? And so, the, it's interesting. And I don't have it in here. But does anybody remember what the prophets used to be called in the Old Testament? 1 Samuel 9 9. You can jot the text down if you want. 1 Samuel 9 9 says that prophets used to be called seers. Because they saw things that other people didn't see. They saw with God's eyes. And so when God says, I'm going to guide you with my eye, incidentally, you come to the Laodicean church, and what's one of the conditions? Because they're what? And you know, because they're blind. I'm going to tell you something, saints. God provided ISAV to the Laodicean church through the gift of prophecy. It, it was, it's given for spiritual eyesight, for spiritual discernment. I mean, that's, that's, and you can study that out, but I believe that's the application. So, why do we need prophets if we already have the Bible? Because we tend to see things differently, right? There's a way that seems right to a man. So the prophet needed to correct God's people if they had erroneous thinking and point them back to the Scripture. Number 12, how did Jesus describe Jerusalem in his final public address? He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and I have it there in the, in the quote, the italics, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her well how would how, what would you think if jesus described your church oh yeah your church you guys are the ones who kill the prophets like couldn't you say hey you guys are doing good outreach over there with bible study offerings some things like that and oh by the way you killed some of the prophets i mean no you're known for what killing the prophets why is this important well i'm building on it with the question how does jesus describe jerusalem as the one who kills the prophets number 13 how should we how uh, should we ever expect a true prophet to be popular even among professed Christians? In Luke 13, 33, Jesus says, Can it be that a prophet should perish outside Jerusalem? Now you think about the implications of that. Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets. Can it be that a prophet should perish outside Jerusalem? What's he implying? Yeah, Jerusalem's a killer, but the prophet's never going to make it alive outside of Jerusalem. And listen to me carefully, folks. Non-Christians don't care what your prophet says. Who cares? That's another opinion. You know who it really bothers? It bothers the people who profess to be following God because the prophet exposes it, right? I mean, a non-believer doesn't care. Hey, believe whatever you want. The prophet never made it outside. God's people, why'd they kill the prophets? Because the prophet was pointing out things that they didn't want to know and they didn't want others to know. And this is, you find this all through Scripture. You'll never find, name one popular prophet. It'll be, a, yeah, after they're dead, they're real popular. Okay, so, and that doesn't mean that there wasn't, there weren't people, obviously, who appreciated the prophets and that kind of thing. But, you see this, this pattern. Should we ever expect a true prophet? Now, I have this in the study because I want people to understand, you know, if you look at the Bible, hey, that's true, in the Bible, it, then they hear the criticisms and they're going to say that's in harmony with what the scripture teaches. See, if I'm looking for, I'm not, I, I don't care what the church teaches. I care what the scripture teaches. I, 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 I mean, I care that the church teaches scripture. But I want to know what is, if I'm looking for a prophet, it has to match what the Bible says a prophet is. It has to match. And if the prophets in the Bible were all treated with contempt and rejected, 
I would have to scratch my head and wonder if there was this modern prophet that everybody just thought was great and nobody balked against, right? Bible says, uh, you know, the question is, should we ever expect a true prophet to be popular even among Christians? No. And I put the, in, the, in the italics, the prophets were categorically rejected by the people of God. You see this over and over. Number 14, why were the false prophets so popular? And I have Luke, it was 6.26. Luke 6.26 says, woe to you and all men speak well of you. Why were the false prophets popular? Because they spoke well of you. I've t I told my church this. I'm going to tell you this. The sermon you like the least is probably the one you need the most. We come out of there. We like to go to church and hear something that makes me feel good. But that's not what God does. That's not going to save my soul. The prophets did not come and pray. And I'll tell you something. And I'm not a prophet. I'm a pastor. But there's a lot of sermons I got to preach that I wish I didn't have to preach. I, there, I wish I could modify it and say, Lord, I'm going to preach this one because they're going to like this one. Lord says, no, you're not going to preach that one. You're going to preach this one. Lord, they're going to hate that one. I don't care they're going to hate that one. That need, they need that one. And he sent the prophets with it. Ellen White said at one point, I'd rather have my, <laughs> I'd rather have both arms torn off at the shoulders than to have another vision. No, no, no. She said, that's, that's a, that's a, that was another, I mixed two things up. She said, I'd rather die than have another vision. Because she knew if I have another vision, that, that vision is given to me to tell the people, and they're going to hate it, and they're going to hate me. I mean, I just, oh, I praise God that I'm not a prophet. <laughs> I mean, I praise God. What a miserable existence, as you find in Scripture. Anyway, um, look at Jeremiah 5, Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 31. No, we've already told them there's a modern prophet in a study before this. I'm wanting them to see what biblical prophets were. I'm wanting them to have a biblical framework. How are you going to know to accept a prophet or not if you don't even have a biblical framework? What are you comparing it with? Like, I don't know if I accept that element. How do you know that? How can you, in other words, most people don't even have the framework. What is a prophet? I don't know what a prophet is. How are the prophets treated? I don't know how they were treated. This lays a biblical foundation for them to see, oh, this is what a prophet is, a spokesperson for God. Oh, this is how the prophets were regarded. Oh, this is why God gave the prophets to point his people back to the instruction of Scripture. Oh, this is why, this is why. This gives them a biblical framework from which now to make a decision on evaluating a prophet. We have. I'm, you've been in a meeting or a presentation or a study. When you go over the remnant, you always go into, oh, one of the identifying characteristics is the gift of prophecy. And usually in that presentation, you hear now the Seventh-day Adventist Church believes that Ellen White had that gift. And we don't have a lot to say about that tonight. We have that in coming nights or coming studies or whatever else. But that's So they've just gotten a little bit of it. And so this is helping them to understand what is the testimony of Jesus we talked about? What is the... That's the, that's the, the point of this. Word. Yes. I'm going to show you that in just a minute. I'm going to do it quickly. What I'm going to do is this. Could somebody go ahead and switch the air back on? And then I hate to not have... I was wanting to give a break, but we're, we've got 15 minutes, and I'm going to highlight the, um, the next study. This, is, this, this one is more key. I'll show you that in a minute. Uh, I'm going to highlight the next study, but I'm going to have you stand up and... and well, have, stand, why don't you stand up now? And just I, Again, I, I wish I'd give you a break, but then you know, we're into lunchtime. So I want to finish the points in this. Now, while you're standing, I'm going to look at uh, Jeremiah 5 that we turn to. Verse 31, the Bible says, The prophets prophesy falsely. That means they tell the people what's not true. 
and the priests rule by their own power, and my people love to have it so. Well, what's it saying? People like the false prophesying. Why? Because it doesn't, doesn't point out their errors. And so it's not hard to figure out why the people like the false prophets and hated the true prophets. Okay, number 15. You can go ahead and sit back down. Or you can continue standing. What happens when God's people disregard? You can do push-ups if you want to. Or What happens when God's people disregard? Now, this one I want you to look at. Second Chronicles. This is such a fascinating passage. Second Chronicles 36, verses 15 and 16. This closes the Chronicles. It's the last section in the Chronicles. Second Chronicles 36. It's the last chapter. Verses 15 and 16. Here's where you have to understand the history of Israel. Israel split into two parts, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom then was referred to as Israel and the southern kingdom was Judah. Jerusalem uh, was uh, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. The northern kingdom, because of their apostasy, ended up God allowed the Assyrian armies to come in and conquer them and carry them off as, into captivity. Now, you've got to keep this in mind that the southern kingdom had a chance to see all this happen. Now, you'd think that'd wake you up and say, wow, we better get our ducks in a row here. We better, you know, get back to God because we saw what just happened. And the Lord even says it through, is it Ezekiel or is it, I'm trying to remember now the text off the top of my head where the Lord says, you know, this is what happened to your sister, you know, and he calls him Sodom. But he says, you know, this is going to happen to you if you don't repent. Well, the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, also rebelled. And, of course, God foretold for years through the prophet Isaiah, or through Jeremiah, the Babylonian captivity. They didn't have to go into captivity if they would have just listened to the Lord. But they kept rebelling, they kept rebelling. God kept sending prophets until he comes to this point. And this is what he says. So finally, the Babylonian captivity has come because God's people didn't turn back to him. And this is what he says. And we're going to look at verses um, 15. I'm going to start in verse 14 here. It says, Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed, what? More and more, according to all the abominations of the nations, and defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers. Who are the messengers? You're going to see it in a minute. It's the prophets. Rising up what? Why would God throw that in there? Rising up early and sending them. Think about it for a minute. Now, you may get up early, but what causes you to get up earlier than you normally get up? Okay? Because you have what? Something to do. That's what? Important. A priority. Now, I just I, this is what I believe the Lord is saying. He's trying to say, look, you know, the captivity is coming. He's trying to say, look, I tried to tell you. I tried to, I sent my messengers rising up early and sending them. Why? Because he had compassion on his people and his dwelling place. In other words, God made this a priority. He was wanting to rescue his people, but they wouldn't listen, wouldn't listen, wouldn't listen. Verse uh, 16, but they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was what? What does that mean, no remedy? Nothing else he could do. Why? Is there ever a point where you've said all that you can say? Some of you parents maybe have just pleaded with your children, and there comes a point where you, what else are you going to say? 
and they're going to make their decision. Now, just for you parents, God did bring people back from Babylon. <laughs> there were some people that were rescued. But this came to a point where they wouldn't listen. You, you got to understand that the Lord's point to us is he sends his prophets. What else can he do? And this is the this is the most he can do once he's said it. Think about Jesus for a minute. When Jesus went before Herod, you remember he went before King Herod and the Bible says Herod was asking him questions and Jesus didn't answer him a word. You ever think about that? Like, man, why wouldn't Jesus say something? Give him a, you say something to him to give the man a chance to repent. Why do you think Jesus didn't say anything? What did Herod, who did Herod have killed? John the Baptist. And listen to me carefully. Don't miss this. God had said everything he could say to awaken Herod's heart through his prophet. There was nothing left that could be said. Don't think you're going to have another opportunity. Oh, I don't want to listen to that. If God wants to let me know, look, he's letting you know. Right? What happens when God's people disregard the gift of prophecy? They exhaust all of his efforts to save until there's no remedy. Number 16, what is this God's secret to success in the Christian life? Second Chronicles 2020, I always think of 2020 vision and the prophets being the seer. Helps me remember the test. It says, believe in the Lord your God, so shall you uh, 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 prosper. Believe, no, believe, so shall you be established. Believe in his prophets and so shall you prosper. What's the secret to success, to prospering? Believe his prophets. Believe the messages God gives through his prophets. And so... You see the appeal in every age. Jesus has spoken to his people through his prophets. He's given warnings and guidance and encouragement and hope as needed for them to prosper in their spiritual lives. In these last days, he still speaks to us through his prophets. And are you willing to listen? So that's kind of setting out the idea of prophets. And then the next study is simply a study on false prophets. It's going through, there are tests of a prophet, but to try to put it all in one study is just too much. And that... the the little study guide here does that, but what happens is you go through the tests, and what I don't like is I want to establish them more in understanding what a prophet is according to Scripture. Because in, in my estimation, and this is just in my experience, to know what was in that previous study, the one we just went over, to know what's in that study and understand that this is how the Bible describes a prophet helps me to navigate through the whole idea of prophet. Now I have something to compare it with. Now I know what the Bible says about prophets, and now I can compare this with Ellen White. Now you have the tests of a prophet that, that deal with the prophet's message primarily. And I'm just going to go through, I'll, oh, you know, you have it written out here, so I'm just going to highlight it. Um, the Beware of False Prophets study starts with the question, what particular counterfeit... Did Jesus warn his followers against the last days? And he says in Matthew 7, 15, beware of false prophets. And I like to point out right away, now if Jesus said beware of false prophets, what does that imply? It's going to be true prophets. Because if there weren't going to be any true prophets, it would have been a lot easier for Jesus just to say, hey, beware of anybody claiming to be a prophet. But he didn't. He said beware of the false ones. Well, what does that mean? How can I beware of the false ones? What, well, how do I know whether one's false or true? That's question number two. How can we know whether a prophet is true, prophet or a false one? The Bible says test them. And so you're just introducing the idea that, look, Jesus said they're going to be false, and by implication they're going to be true. We've seen already in our last study they're going to be true prophets, but you, they have to be in accordance with Scripture, right? They have to be, so how do you, you know, the Bible says we need to test them. How do you test the prophets? These are four Scripture tests for prophet. Question number three, what are the biblical tests? The first test, Isaiah 8.20 
to launch the testimony. So the point or the test is this, a true prophet will never contradict what God has already revealed in his word. And I like to let people know here, and it, it, it says it in the italics, but you know, the, uh, the Mormon church believe they have the gift of prophecy. Okay, the Jehovah's Witnesses church believe they have the gift of prophecy. But for example, the Mormons believe Joseph Smith was a prophet. But the Mormons believe that because Joseph Smith was, came later, like he's the new and improved, he supersedes everything before. And so he becomes true, and anything that disagrees with him, even in Scripture, becomes false. Okay, that's the concept that they have of a prophet. That's also the concept of the Muslims with Muhammad. Muhammad's a later prophet, he's a new and improved. and every, That's not what we believe. We don't believe, and, and that's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that anybody who's a true prophet will not contradict what has already been established. It would be confusing if God were to send prophets that confuse... No, God is going to send a prophet to reaffirm. God doesn't make mistakes. And so a true prophet has to be in harmony. And you'll see that with each one of these, I'll have a little statement or a quote of something where we compare Ellen White. And Ellen White herself never placed herself above Scripture. And that's really unique among these other churches that claim the gift of prophecy. And, and I mentioned, you know, Muslim, uh, Mormons and Muslims and Jehovah's Witness. But there are a lot of Pentecostal churches and other contemporary churches today that believe that they have prophets in their churches. So, I mean, it's, it's becoming more common in certain persuasions, but their concept of a prophet is not one that has to be subjected to Scripture in many cases. So Ellen White was very consistent and unique about that, never put herself above Scripture. Um, so she fits that Bible rule. Number, the letter B, a true prophet will attest to the Bible truth of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And maybe I'll touch on some of that a little bit after lunch. Um, it's interesting that, well, okay, you have the Jehovah's Witnesses who believe that Jesus is more man than God, right? He was a God. You have the Catholics who believe he was more God than man. So they have these levels of, of, of intercession. Like in Catholicism, that's why you have the Mother Mary. That's why you have all the saints. You kind of pave the way to the Father and to Jesus, because he's, he's so holy, and so you have the Immaculate Conception. I don't know if you're aware of the, the Immaculate Conception doctrine is not that Jesus was born from a virgin. The Immaculate Conception doctrine was that Mary was born sinless. Are you aware of that? So she could have a sinless child. Because they, they have Christ so far removed from humanity. So he's more God than man, and in Jehovah's Witness, he's more man than God. No, we believe that the Scripture teaches that he was fully God and fully man, and yet he never sinned and was tempted in all the way. And so this is a truth that uh, uh, obviously a true prophet is going to bear witness to, but a false prophet will not. So that's another one of the tests. And you can read about that in, in the italics. Letter C, a true prophet will be known by the fruit of their character and ministry. And the Bible says you'll know them by their fruits. And I, and I break that into two things, by their character and their ministry. Number one, you wouldn't expect a true prophet of God to be living like a heathen, <laughs> Right? So you're going to expect some level of, you're not going to expect a true, a true prophet is still a person, is still a human being, and you see that in the Bible. They still have faults. So we're not, don't expect more than humanity out of a prophet. But a true prophet of God is going to be seeking to live by Christian principle. Okay? And we have that in Ellen White. We have that in testimony from people who are outside of our church of her life and what have you. But the other aspect of by their fruits is not just by their, the way they live, but the fruit of their teaching. Right? 
if somebody follows the teaching of a prophet, if it's a true prophet, that teaching ought to lead that person to become more Christ-like. If the teaching is leading somebody away from Christ in the Bible, then that's not a fruit of the teaching of a true prophet. And there's an interesting study referenced here in, that, in the italicized part that they did at Andrews University. Really, a couple of the fascinating parts about it were they studied Seventh-day Adventists, two groups, one group who read Ellen White's writings on a regular basis and one that didn't. And the ones who read her writings on a regular basis actually spent more time in Scripture. And it's interesting because people say, well, they spend all their time in, in Ellen White. No, the people who spend their time reading Ellen White spend more time reading the Bible than those who don't read Ellen White. They also had more confidence in their church, more assurance of salvation, all these positive fruits of teaching. And so I have that listed in the study. Letter D, a true prophet's predictions will always come to pass. And that goes with letter number four. Um, what did God promise if a nation turned from its course of action? And what we're doing in number four is, and I'll put it together, a true prophet's predictions come to pass unless they are conditional prophecies. And you have to understand that the Bible has certain prophecies that a prophet gave that were conditional. The most well-known, and you've probably heard this before, is the prophecy of Jonah. When Jonah went to prophesy against Nineveh, what was his message? Does anybody remember? He said, no, there wasn't repent or else. It was 40 days and Nineveh is going to be destroyed, period. There was no repent. There was no second chance. There was no anything. And yet they repented and they had a second chance. Why? Well, Jeremiah spells that out. Other, elsewhere in Scripture, God says, if a nation turns, then I can change my, what I was going to do. If I was going to bring destruction, I can relent. Or if I was going to bring blessings and they turn from me, then they'll have destruction. And so what God does is he introduces the conditional element and just makes the point that a prophet, when a prophet prophesies something, it's a true prophet of God, that prophecy is going to happen unless there's a conditional element. And then the condition is not always stated. It wasn't stated by Jonah. And there are cases in Ellen White's ministry where she would give a prophecy that was conditional and, and it didn't come to pass. And people say, oh, she's a false prophet. No, it was a conditional prophecy. And it's clear that it's conditional. There's an ex ex example I can give you, but I'm going to do... I don't want to skip that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick that up after lunch as we uh, finish up. There's, a, there's these couple last ones I just want to make a couple points on and more, more time than I want to take right now at the moment. So sorry for skipping the break. This afternoon we're going to finish up. Uh, so let's have a word of prayer. Now let me ask you this. Is there anybody here? If there's anybody here who wants the materials and you didn't get them, my wife is here to take payment for that, or if you haven't paid. So if you haven't received the materials, the binder and the, and the uh, study guides and the fundamentals of faith, you can do that after class. See me or her, she's there in the back. And then um, if you haven't paid yet, you can see her to do that. And you're set up for credit card. Uh, yeah, I can do. I can take care of that. Um, and then this afternoon, uh, we brought T-shirts, Emmanuel T-shirts, so everybody gets a T-shirt. But we'll talk about that when we get back from lunch. So just so you have a heads up on all that, and you can actually grab one before lunch if you want to come over here and look through your size and what have you. Um, just so you know, um, you might want to try it. There's not a lot of shrinkage, but there's a little bit, so you know ahead of time so you don't walk away and say, "Oh, I love this T-shirt," and then you get. 
and it doesn't shrink a lot, but they are slimmer fitting, so just so you're aware of that. All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you've loved us enough to rise up early and send the prophets to us, that you've loved us enough to tell us where we are drifting away from you so, Father, we can return to you with all our hearts. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to be open always to your voice, that we would be open to your correction, and that you would continue to draw us closer to yourself so that we may be one day very soon experience that, that, that uh, description of the unity of the faith and the fullness of the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ, and that we may be rejoicing to see you coming uh, and Jesus coming in all his glory. Father, bless us now as we go to our lunch and bring us back together this afternoon as we seek to learn more and to um, spread your gospel to the world around us. We ask and pray it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.